Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pause Fest 2015. This is the third conference on Saturday, and it's been a big, big day, and we are very, very happy. These opening titles were done by Ryan Summers from X Imaginary Forces in LA. Ryan is at Pause Fest. He'll be talking to, later on today, finishing off the Art of VFX conference down in Acme Cube stage. Well, we are here to talk about Internet of Things and what that means uh, in this digital age. Um, and I'm not going to take too long of your time. I just really want to introduce um, our moderator, Ben Bickford. Um, I met Ben some years ago um, in downtown Melbourne. He was running Mobile, Mobile Mondays. He still does. It's, I think, 10th anniversary or something like that. 15 years, oh my God. And he did, does this on a side. It's, he's a very passionate guy. He also posts the best photos of Melbourne Sunrise. <laughs> uh, please, Ben Bigford, come to the stage and take over. Thank you, George. Can everyone hear me uh, right up the back there? Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Well, firstly, thank you everyone for making it here today. It's uh, very exciting to be a part of the vision that George had now five years in the making to bring something of a an international, uh, I would say, on the roadmap for the future, something that puts Melbourne and Australia on the map, and Australian creative, digital, media, mobile, social media, as well as the creative and agencies all together in one festival. The only thing I can compare that to is something known as South by Southwest. It really is an innovation and inspiration festival, and I'd like to congratulate all of you for being a part of this because it's not, it's not that everything's solved and there's a lot more to be uh, evolved from today's discussion that will in fact influence a lot of these ideas and business models and so really you're a part of that creative process just being here. So first off, give yourselves a big clap for being here and thank you and welcoming you to the Pause <laughs> Festival. So the proceedings this afternoon, I'm going to just share a little bit more about myself and I've got a couple of minutes to do that. I'll then share a little bit about Internet of Things, some of the things for you to think about as you listen to the speakers today. It's going to be a journey and I'm going to walk the stage to take you on that journey. I want to bring you from, I guess, the, the little sparks that have inspired these people that are going to come and share their ideas, their business models, their products, their wearables. And they're going to also open up and give you the chance to ask questions. And I'm actually excited about that because everything that is digital, I think the promise of digital is to actually engage and to gather that feedback. And that's what really does bring things to life. So I'm going to challenge you all to really listen and take in not just the technology, but take in the passion that you're going to hear this afternoon 
And with that passion, think about how these ideas are going to impact you and your life. And with that, I'd love to hear some questions. Some questions that come from your own inspiration to take and challenge what you hear, to challenge the ideas and to challenge these people because you, as I say, are just as much a part of these concepts as you challenge and bring, uh, I guess, a greater depth to the discussion. And I do know that there's uh, certainly some challenging presentations as well to come. So we've, we have some very uh, creative thinkers and some fabulous ideas that are literally going to change your daily lives. And you're going to hear about it here. Most of the team here are based here in Melbourne. Some have actually flown in specifically for the event. And in that sense, I do say, and having attended a lot of events around the world, whether it be Mobile World Congress in Barcelona that I'm off to again in two weeks, or to South by Southwest, which happens in Austin, Texas each year, now approaching, I think it's 25, maybe 30 years. Uh, this event is showcasing our talent, our local and regional talent. And this talent, as you'll hear, is being taken to the world. So you, in the audience, have just as much potential to have a cracker of an idea or to be inspired by some of the ideas you hear today and to go off and perhaps in the room be sitting next to someone that might either collaborate with you or point you in the right direction to bring your ideas to life. So that's really what I want to share as a bit of a preamble of the Internet of Things. And what does it mean? So it's important, I think, to actually give a little bit of a definition of what Internet of Things means to me and to frame a bit of the, the discussion and the thread of each of these presentations this afternoon. The Internet of Things, in my view, is actually adding what probably started about roughly about 25 years ago, back in the early 90s when we used a computer and connected to the Internet. That was the first device. It's proceeded to include tablets and mobile or smartphone devices in terms of being able to connect to content and information and to collaborate with other devices on that internet to the point where today you're going to see some cutting-edge wearable tech and that's actually uh, brought up by a number of speakers today about how wearable tech is going to play a part in our lives and you'll hear a couple of different perspectives so today that threading of internet things through sensors whether it be humidity temperature, or in the case of cars, potentially life-saving devices. And one of our speakers will talk about how Internet of Things and those sensors will have an impact in terms of our health and well-being. In fact, there's a couple of speakers that will cover that aspect. So you're really going to hear the gamut and the relevance, and I hope you'll draw the inspiration from what is titled as the Internet of Things in, in the session that will go from now through to approximately 5 p.m. And at the end of each presentation, we'll have roughly about eight minutes to ask some questions. I'll help facilitate that as well. And I really look forward to a rich and dynamic interaction with the speaker about the content and certainly to share some of those burning questions that I hope will rise out, out of the seats, come down here to share with all of us so that you can be a part of this, of this wonderful experience. Now, without looking at my phone, I've got a sense that it's about time to introduce the first speaker. My background's actually in mobile, predominantly, over the last 10 or so years. In telco, in teaching programming at Monash University, and in fact, 
It's, it's sort of a link point back to, back to the first speaker. We actually went to the same university, probably had very different experiences as well. Although I do remember uh, this next speaker being very avant-garde, very much ahead of his time, and looking up to him even back then, and looking forward to the journey of seeing where this gentleman and his vision and his creativity would ha play a part in helping other ideas come to fruition. And, and similarly, we've had probably a rather uh, an interesting parallel trajectory in that way. But I'd, I'd like to uh, just give a little bit more of a preamble about this gentleman. He's been involved in, uh, whether fortuitously or you could say otherwise, but amongst the bushfires, who here with a raise of hands remembers the, uh, the bushfires in King Lake and, uh, yes? Okay, so this gentleman was actually uh, there and amongst it all and rallying people using technology, using something that was still fairly new and, and he was definitely at the, the early stages of this, but recognising the relevance of technology in that case through necessity to communicate and collaborate and bring resources to help deal with the issues brought on by a fire. And in that sense, uh, Pete has a, a very deep connection in terms of that intersection, uh, as he did in that particular time, technology being practical, technology being an amazing tool to help people collaborate. And at the same time, as long as I've known Pete, there's something deep down as well, which is extremely passionate and about people. And he loves bringing these ideas to fruition. And in that case, it was about lives and, and through the collaboration and the skill and the talent of many people that literally could be coordinated through something as simple as Twitter. But he's always had that vision from as long as I've known him, how to make things relevant. And you're gonna hear today some really interesting insights about how wearables is gonna be relevant in our daily lives. So with that, uh, the former head of, uh, well, the head of uh, the Edge in um, Deloitte Digital and uh, his own consulting firm, Rexter Consulting. Please give a big warm welcome to Pete Williams. Thanks, Ben. All right, um, so my uh, talk was billed as welcome to the Internet of Things, and, but I couldn't bring my car, I couldn't bring my Sonos speakers, I couldn't bring my drone, I couldn't bring my um, LifeX globes, and I'm a bit of a tech junkie, and particularly a crowdfunding junkie, so um, I'm gonna talk a bit about Internet of Things, but just in the context of wearables, because it's easier to bring them along. The, the first major sort of Internet of Things, although, oh, sorry, actually, this is my um, sidekick here, Hadi Salem. Hadi is, Hadi, sorry. Hadi is, um, he was a bit of a fanboy of mine. Um, he started at Deloitte in the first day. The young grad knocks on the office, so, hi, Pete, I'm Hadi, and, you know, really proud to have the opportunity to work with you and all that stuff. Reality is, mate, he's a gun. Uh, he just slays it, so uh, it's just fantastic. It's the first time we've been on stage together. So uh, can you welcome Hattie, Hattie, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> As I say to him, if you want to be called Hattie, add a D. You always have, you know, the, the vowel goes long if there's one consonant. But anyway, that's an English lesson. So the first major thing I did really around sensors was a sort of fairly adventurous project. It was to put RFID chips on 27 million cows. Um, it was called the National Livestock Identification System and basically what we needed to do was to, uh, for things like food traceability, uh, shutting down quarantine zones for disease outbreaks, being able to have lifetime traceability for organic certification of meat, um, to be able to trace an individual portion of meat to an animal to everywhere it's been, which is when you kill them you take a, a DNA strand and 
associate it with the RFID tag, a little bit sort of um, macabre, but that's what we did. And uh, that was in 2004. And interestingly enough, Australia is world leaders in that sort of stuff. I've been talking to people down at places like Sense T in Tasmania, where they're doing the Internet of Oysters, where they're using sensors to manage water quality, temperature um, for all the oyster fields. So the, the sort of stuff that can be possible with what we call the Internet of Things is pretty amazing. The, the, the other thing, though, is a lot of these Internet of Things things aren't really Internet of Things because, say, my drone um, yeah, creates its own everything. And the other thing is, within everything, everything creates its own fucking Wi-Fi network, you know? So you actually get really good at that setting stuff, you know? Hang on, which thing? Oh, no, change it to LifeX, put it on Sonos. Da, da, da. Um, it's still a bit clunky, which is normal with most technology. So the other thing I also believe, and particularly to the creative people in the audience, is that first we tend to use new technology to play, and it's through that play and its experimentation that we find the stuff that really matters. So for the creators in this audience, we're in a time where what we can do with technology has never been easier, cheaper, or more accessible. In the old days, in, you know, again, people might say I'm a pioneer of the internet. I started in 93. Other people would just say I'm old. But back in those days, you know, you were clunking around trying to do stuff. When Wi-Fi networks first come out, you had to have a degree in rocket science to even get one connected. Um, these things are getting easier, but the price of technology will always collapse. So the opportunity for you guys is as much about what can I come up with and who can I connect with to get some ideas. And I think you'll see, uh, say, the guys from Lifeable following that exact model. Uh, <coughs> so let's focus on the wearables. So, and, and I suppose the whole start, you know. So this is a bit of a, a slide that we pulled together a year or so ago. But what we're seeing is an explosion of technology use. Um, so, you know, iPhones, smartphones, just going everywhere. Wearables in pretty basic sort of forms, whether they be your Fitbits, whether they be your Lumobacks, all of those sort of things just exploding. Are, com are consumers really aware of it? Um, to some extent they are, but, you know, you'll often see people sort of wandering around with, a, you know, a wristband or that stuff sort of in, uh, irrespective of age. But they're not really aware of the overall opportunity around the wearables. Um, but we see that devi those devices are going to explode. The other interesting thing about this explosion of devices, it's a bit like after the Big Bang and the Cambrian explosion of species, you know, when they go down into the rock levels and they find that all the species got wiped out, but it led to a whole new uh, generation of a whole heap of species. What we're starting to see is that it's no longer barriers to entry based upon, hey, you have to be Apple, Sony, or the big guys to do it. A lot of the stuff we're seeing is coming out of, you know, it's, it's LifeX who reinvented the light globe. It's Pebble who came out with the new watch. The barriers to entry have, have also removed, and you don't necessarily have to march up and down Collins Street, Pitt Street, or run around the streets of San Francisco looking for someone to drop you a quick 20 mil. It's a lot easier to do it these days. Um, again, the social media amplification of it through Twitter, it's making it all happen, and there's a lot of money being invested. So... Real, real opportunity. But for, for, this, for people in this festival, it's about how can I combine with some of the software engineers, some of the creative things, some of the things that our clients are doing, and hey, what could we do with it? So just, just bear that in mind. If you think about Australia, and I say this all the time to people, bloody builds on things. All right, do that again. Thanks, Rob. Uh, <laughs> what that slide is telling you is that Australian individuals absorb technology like sponges, right? Our institutions, unfortunately, absorb technology like bricks. Um, but it's you guys and us guys that are 
the sort of ones who are saying, hey, what can we do with this stuff? And you've got an audience right here, or a market right here of people like, if we look at, um, where are we number one? Online banking, mobile banking, we're number one for pirating content per capita. We're also number one for paying for content per capita. Have a think about that. So Australians will adopt this stuff. Huge up there on social media, 13 points ahead of the US in smartphone penetration. So we adopt technology as fast as anywhere on the planet. Um, so, hey, I've got a great market, I've got a great place to test here, I've got great creative sense, and the incumbents are sitting on their ass doing nothing. So, that says to me, opportunity. If we go down to wearables, it really, and again, a lot of technology, you know, sort of comes out and, you know, oh, this is the great thing, you know, so when the web came out in 93, oh, look, the web's out, it's like, yeah, mate, the guys in, you know, DARPA were doing this in 66. So, it sort of takes, you know, about 25, 30 years for a technology to sort of go through that emergent stage. And the guy who really started wearables was a guy called Steve Mann. So Steve Mann uh, worked at, or still does work at MIT Media Lab. Um, you know, we talk a little bit about form factor. Steve wasn't big on form factors in the early days. Um, he actually got attacked by a customer service or a person at the counter in McDonald's in Paris, walking in with one of those cyborg looking things and the guy's like, ah, uh, and attacked him. Uh, so, I always find it's interesting to go back to the history though. So, Steve Mann effectively devoted his life to wearable technology and you know, was called the cyborg guy and recorded every step of his life and all that sort of stuff. But not only did he learn the technological stuff, but he also shared a lot of the sort of social stuff. So, he talks about surveillance, which is over the top watching everybody, to surveillance under the, under the sort of radar, me watching you instead of me being watched. So, and a lot of the sort of social norms and the way to think about this, uh, they've written a lot about that stuff as well. So again, technology can appear and just be good, but it's sort of like, well, how does it fit with society? And I always believe that social trends are what drives the technology trends because technology can sit in the background. If you look at RFID, it was first used in the 1940s, um, and with RFID, you've got a, a sort of transponder that gets a read or a no read. As planes throw over the uh, English Channel from Germany. If you got a no read, shoot it. If it got a read, hey, that's one of ours coming back. 1940s, but RFID really another 50 years until it really started to make things. So if you buy razor blades, actually none of you do because you're all hipsters. Sorry, sorry for mentioning that old technology. But uh, when you used to buy razor blades, you'll see on the back there's a little RFID antenna and stuff there because Gillette used to get them all knocked off across the supply chain, so did this thing, you know, where did I get a read, where did I not, that's where they're going to knock off. So, um, if, if you, when the new the fad of hipsterism goes, which, um, given by the Deloitte Digital crew up there, might be another year or so, um, have a look. So, you know, we really started to, I think the, the biggest thing that I remember around wearables and stuff was this video about the thing called the Sixth Sense. Do, do people remember that? Yeah, yeah. So we sort of saw this. What it is, it's like a tally pointer. It's a wearable that would project out and you had the little sticky things and you did that. And we, we sort of looked at that and again, like, you know, I think it was Tesla who said, the Nikola Tesla, not the car. Um, you know, great technology should look like magic. And when you saw this sort of stuff, you're sort of like, wow, how, you know, I could do that. Or the guy's in the supermarket and touches the product and then suddenly all the product information, like augmented reality, uh, projecting on a screen, you know, taking photos like that. So we look at that and say, wow, you know, where is this going? And again, MIT Media Lab, but it sort of, you know, it captivated us. You know, I, 
I personally, oh sorry, I'll, I'll talk a bit about where it went in a sec. The, the other thing is we think of early consumer wearables, most of them are sort of stuff or designed like we wear today. So, um, you know, glasses, rings, uh, bands and watches. Hardy has got an interesting thing on there which doesn't look like anything that anybody's ever worn before. Maybe a telephone operator stuff. But again, so there's a form factor thing there. Um, and just because something doesn't work, like say Google Glass, Hey, you know what? I mean, I had a, is Josh Guest here? No. no. He, he's this young kid who runs around with Google Glasses, you know? I've got to have a meeting with him with the Google Glasses on. It's like, mate, if you want to talk to me, turn those fucking things off. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, and I hadn't really thought about it before, but as soon as I'm sitting down there knowing someone's recording me, I'm like, not happy. So, uh, you know, there was that sort of social factor around that. And again, a lot of the stuff that we see at the moment is pretty dinky. You know, the Fitbit, oh, yeah, how many steps have I done? The worst thing about getting a Fitbit is um, I live in the bush and it's 250 metres from my back door to where I have to put the rubbish bins out. And, you know, as a bloke, oh, you know, I can't, the sore leg, man flu, whatever. The wife's like, you need the steps, just get moving. So it's, um, you know, these things can sort of have a two-edged sword. I got really excited in uh, 2014. This, uh, this was a, a video about a product called the ring. The ring, now look at that, you know, you put the ring on, and you sort of wave around, you pay money, you do your watch, all that sort of stuff, you know, like click it and you make the screen move. Doesn't work, man. Uh, no, we're not, we're not doing the ring. What? We're not doing You didn't get that working? No. Fuck it <laughs> Why didn't you make it work? Because it doesn't work. <laughs> just because it said it's the worst product ever shipped and you've just wasted 400 bucks on a stupid product that doesn't work. Um, all right, you take over, mate. You take over. I've had enough. <laughs> That's pretty harsh. So um, if we can swap to, to my screen, that would be really good. So the ring is a good example of uh, wearables really going through that trough of disillusion that we see in Gartner's hype cycle. It's when wearables really start to really build up a lot of hype and everyone gets very excited about wearables and this video really sells it as being something amazing. Then you get your hands on it and the build is cheap and the pins don't line up and you can't charge it and the setup process is ridiculous and... It's a massive anticlimax. Um, what I want to show you instead is a couple of things. I'll start by this thing. It's called Mayo, and I'm wearing it on my wrist. Now, I've been, very, I've been collecting a lot of demo karma for ages. So we'll see if, uh, if things work. I'll be very happy if they do. Cool. So this lets me do is control my computer using gestures. So in this case, I'm going to control um, Spotify, right? Looking good? Right, and you see it locks when I'm not using it as well, so it's non-intrusive. The user experience is pretty well thought out as well. Um, so I'll try to change tracks. There you go, and I can lock it again when I'm done. Um, but it's still not perfect, right? If I knock my fingers against something, it'll sometimes pick it up like that. See how it says ready? Um, and I could knock my fingers and then move my hand. Whoa. And it will repeat sucks. So this is one thing that's pretty cool. The other thing I really want to share with you guys, which is, is what I'm wearing on my head. Um, does anyone here know what I'm wearing? Just maybe a show of hands. Hit us okay. with it. What is it? <laughs> on his head. On my head. <laughs> I am wearing jeans as well. Yes. We got one. I remembered those. Yes. Sorry? He's, we got one. Emotive. Someone said emotive. Yeah. Do you want to talk about emotive? From the yeah. Story? So um, back in about 
2002, I um, introduced by David Smorgan uh, to a group of young Vietnamese kids. And um, he said, look, they're, they're sort of extraordinary kids and they've got some ideas and I don't understand them. Can you see if you can help them out? So I went and met with them and uh, the first one was, uh, oh, who are you? I'm Nam and oh, what's your background? When I was eight, I was taken out of school as a gifted child, sent to a university in um, Russia and then I won the, international, uh, the Olympic medal for chemistry. Oh, shit, yeah, that's pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> next bloke, um, yeah, what, what did you do? I was taken to a university in Russia, finished uh, my doctorate when I was 16, and then I won the International Olympic medal for mathematics. Yeah, sure. Another one, what did you win a medal for? Gold medal for? Oh, physics. Like, okay, and then there's a girl there. What did you win a medal for? I didn't win a medal, but I'm the young Australian of the year. Oh, shit, okay. Your idea's a little bit way ahead of its time, but it's not so much the ideas you have, it's the group of people like really smart people with a crap idea tend to be able to find a good idea not too far off. And then, so the idea they had, they sort of shelved, but then they moved into this idea of, what about if we could create a technology device that we could play computer games by thinking? Hmm. And I sort of said, you know, that's probably not a bad thing, guys, but if you could do that, you might be able to sort of help coma patients, paraplegics and all that stuff, but as Rex Creed says, first we use technology to play, and then what matters. They, um, they got some funding from a guy called Neil Westy, who was a, a fiber optic guy, who uh, sold, was probably the biggest exit in Australia around the dot-com boom, 384 million, I think, to uh, Cisco for Radiata Communications. They did a lot of work with the ANU and the Brain Institute and all that stuff. They had to come up with some really big tech breakthroughs in terms of how can I set, sense the electrical pathways of neurons firing, uh, without gels, because whilst these things called EEGs that read your brain waves have been away, normally you'd have to shave your head, put gel on, and that's not really that good form factor for a wearable. So this is what it does. Yeah, so the Insight, which is what I'm wearing right now, is the second generation device from uh, Emotive, and I think it's due later on, uh, later on this year. So I want to show you a couple of things. Um, the first one is a visualization of my brain, um, and you'll be able to see all the activity in my brain. I'll try to sort of relax and take a few deep breaths and you should see it sort of clear up. And then as I think of stuff some more, you'll see a lot more activity. Hey, Heidi, think of a happy thought. <laughs> so you see when I smile and I laugh, it just, it, it literally mind blown. It actually just explodes with um, I I know, meditate. neural Come connections. Sorry? Meditate, pretend you're a Buddhist. Pretend I'm a Buddhist. Um, All right, look, I'll try to take a, a few deep breaths and relax, and you'll see the activity in my brain really start to dial down. Whoa, that's good. Cool. So, yeah, what you're seeing there is, uh, I guess, mapping of all the different brain activity that, that we can capture. Um, what's really cool about this is that there is an SDK, a, develop, a developer kit that we can use, we can hook into, and we can start writing apps for and building you know, software that uses this as an input. So think of paraplegics wanting to control their wheelchair, but also think of other applications about how you can use it to maybe imp improve your fitness training or try to maybe have early diagnosis of certain mental conditions. For bonus points, I want to try and show you one more thing, and that's actually using that SDK to maybe move a cube on the screen. So this is, it's hard, but I'm going to try. <laughs> that's why he's doing it. Okay, I'm not going to start with disappear. Start with um, pull. So it uses a machine learning algorithm to learn what neutral is in my brain. 
And then once I've taught it what neutral is, I can then go in there and train it and teach it what pull means. Right? So now, look, no hands. I want to try and pull that cue, right? And just, just as a quick thing to understand here, that any facial movement any of us make, whether it's a smile, a frown, a wink, the same neuronal pathways fire, so the same electrical signals. So if you're a paraplegic and you didn't want to train it, you might just you know, wink to turn left, wink to turn right, you know, grin to go straight. But what Hardy's had to do here is think, pull, and do it a number of times. How many times did you have to do it? I did about three times. For three time. times. Yeah. And so what he's done is he's given his neuronal pathways for the thought pull to be able to then train that machine to respond to what he's thinking. Yeah. Do you guys want to see me try and train something? Or do you want to keep moving on? Yeah, yeah give it a training. Uh, let's see that. Um, how about we do... All right, I'm going to be brave and try to disappear. Disappear is one of the harder things to train, only because it's a bit more difficult to visualize um, what disappear actually is. I want to clear existing training data, and I'm going to recapture my neutral baseline because this baseline is probably different to what it was when I was sitting comfortably at my desk at home. Um, cool. I'm going to accept that training. Now we're going to try and teach it of how I think of disappear. Um, yeah, that's All right, awesome. let's switch. So, yeah, yeah. can we switch we can again, please, Travis? Yeah. Thanks, guys. So, last year I was a judge at the um, Mumbrella Innovation Awards for um, you know, the most creative use of technology and stuff. And what they had done was take the, the, biggest, the biggest problem on Western in Western Australia in terms of road safety is actually a loss of attention. So, it's a massive, probably the biggest state with the least population in the world. You know, it's just huge. So, and you've got people driving massive distances. So, oftentimes their loss of life is just people sort of zoning out because they're on the road so long. So, what they did was they took an emotive headset, as you can see there, and then they hooked it up around the ability of the headset to uh, read people's level of attention. And then they put a biofeedback thing there just of a red or a green light. So, if you were losing attention, the light would flash and the car would slow. Uh, again, you look at that. What then happened is, that because it was such a novel use of technology, it was published in Wired, it was on all the TechCrunch blogs, it started, got a whole heap of news feeds. So the RAC in WA, their objective was really get some attention about the uh, issues of losing lives because of uh, attention deficit to actually training people. What they also found was people who had driven with one of these things uh, for even a couple of hours, their level of attention post that training, that's, that's Jeff McCullough, the old crusty bloke with a beard, who's one of the founders. Um, yeah, that's him there. Good bloke, real geek. Um, but th the thing is what they taught is that actually that training persisted. So the whole thing about this sort of stuff is when you design something like this, rather than say, hey, we're going to make it, and it's, which was the original thought, let's just make it and make it to play computer games, and we'll design the games. Now it's a bit like, you know what? We'll make it open so people can actually take whatever idea they've got 
And again, you might be able to do this in sort of, if you're artists or, you know, the world's your oyster here. But the good thing is these things are accessible. It ships with an SDK. Like we got ours on, what, Friday, really? And yes, yeah, the boys are hacking stuff together and God knows what will happen next week. But uh, so again, thinking about that. You know, the other sort of things, epidermal computing. I don't know if people have heard of these before. But basically, that is a computer that's about the, the thickness of one of those little stick-on tattoos. And it's got, uh, it's got basically... Uh, an antenna, it's powered using um, wireless, you know, what do you call that stuff? The wireless RF frequency sort of stuff. Um, and again, the notion of that is think what sort of sensors might be out there and I can stack those sensors together. So I could uh, do heat, I could do heart rate, I could do sweat analysis potentially. I could do a whole raft of things and make that computer wearable. I'm capturing a whole heap of data. It doesn't have a screen or anything, but it's a way of smart capturing information on a persistent basis. So people's health problems or things that you need to monitor could be type 2 diabetes, it could be cystic fibrosis and sweat, whatever. Um, these things are really changing. What do, what do we need when we need these Internet of Things things? We sort of, it starts off at the base level with a sensor or a number of sensors or ways of doing things. So it could be your iPhone's got an accelerometer, it's got a GPS, it's got heaps of bloody things that you know that I don't. Um, but by those sensors and a capacity to communicate and capture this data, I can actually compute stuff. And I can either feed that back to you through communication and give you information, or I can just use that sort of stuff to solve big problems. So for us with the cows, it was all about if I got a foot and mouth outbreak, I want to be able to lock that quarantine zone in 15 minutes as opposed to kill the whole cattle herd in Australia. So what's driving this sort of stuff? I might start at the bottom, that thing called the price performance curve. And what that means is price of technology collapses, performance goes through the roof. So, you know, if you looked at, I don't know, what's the latest Sony PlayStation? What's Morpheus? it called? Yeah, so the Sony PlayStation, let's say um, it's got about 850,000 times a Cray supercomputer in 1980, except the Cray supercomputer in 1980 would have cost 8 million and you can buy one for 400 bucks. So it moves exponentially. Uh, crowdfunding. Historically, to be able to try and do new stuff, you had to get funding and run up and down with information memorandums and all that sort of crap. Now you can prototype, whack it up there on Kickstarter or Possible and see what happens. Sensors, the price of sensors keeps going down. So what used to cost us 13 bucks to whack an RFID chip on a cow now probably costs us a buck. Uh, mobile, the smartphone penetration, the ability to do a whole heap of stuff with software and apps on that. Maker spaces, uh, the LifeX guys, where did that start from? It actually was done at the Melbourne Hack Space. Um, there's a guy called Andy Galmy there. If you've got an idea and think, well, if we could add this, 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 how would I do it? Go and see Melbourne Hack Space. Open source software, the Arduino stuff, all that sort of stuff means that we don't have to spend oodles of money on software. We can do the augmented reality stuff and bring data in from other sources. We've got the data and analytics things that make this stuff useful. So this sort of convergence of things means that for creative people or good tech people, hook together with your ideas and you can actually do stuff. Um, here's a bit of a big slide just from some of our tech trends. But, you know, if you want to think about it, um, Think about like when the first mobile apps came out, you know, Telstra, let's do a mobile app and let's shove everything we could ever think of it in my life into it as opposed to, say, the Telstra app 24-7, you know, what's my usage, what's my data, um, what's my bill, but, 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 you know, make it contextual, not too much. Start with less and if you really have to, add some more. Uh, the other thing is this gives us a lot of intelligence, but again, we want to do it in a way where we're not sort of bombarding in individuals with, I've got to do stuff, I've got to take this stuff and all that sort of stuff. It's like, just think, what's our intention with this? You know, there's nothing worse than downloading an app or trying a new wearable and then you get 65,000 emails over the next three weeks. It's like, just shut up. 
You know, it's like my daughter uh, years ago, she got a Tamagotchi, you know, very intensely involved with the Tamagotchi. Then it disappeared. One day I opened the freezer, there's a Tamagotchi. It's like, hey, what's your Tamagotchi doing in the freezer? It wouldn't leave me alone. I put it in the freezer because I thought that might kill it. Um, so remember the Tamagotchi story. Uh, influence, just try new things and really work with your end users to see, well, what works, what doesn't. Um, don't ask me to do too much stuff. Don't ask me to sort of keep feeding in data. Just let me sort of check it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the thing. And then don't overload it. It's like with your LifeX globes, you can have that tell you your SMS messages, your Facebook messages, your Twitter messages, but then you're going to be like a teenage kid with Snapchat, you know. Oh, how are you? Uh, you know, 7,000 messages every time they come and visit. Um, let, the other thing is think about the network, and I think it's important for you people here to say, you know, who am I going to connect with over these next couple of days that can actually allow me to say, well, I've got a great designer, I've got a great sort of electronics person, and we could really do some stuff here. So, <clears throat> just to sort of wind it up. Design for the, the form factor. You know, what am I doing this thing with? I don't want people trying to send emails or read documents on a Pebble watch. It's like, well, let's just sort of think about the stuff we're going to, you know, push out there, make sure it's contextual relevant and not a pain in the ass. Um, respect minimalism. Make it elegant. Um, you know, I'm going to, with my LifeX globes, it's like bing, bing. You know, I'll change the colour. I mean, the other thing you can do with LifeX globes, you tell your mates to come around, say, go next to that globe, it's voice activated, stand behind them and just say, say, turn on, and you can have a world of fun with that sort of stuff. You know, just, hey, look, and they, then they call everyone, hey, look, there's light activated by voice. We're, in fact, you're using an app, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> avoid the unexpected. Yeah, the more stuff, the more hassle quotient you put into the product, the less people use it. And the other thing is, this is about people. You know, the worst thing that happened to the internet was ads. Um, the wearables don't have enough space to do ads, so please leave the ads alone. It's the old internet purists, and we didn't used to have ads. It used to be a much better place. So, um, okay, so be aware. Go, go to places, look at stuff, follow the things that you might think are interesting. Check out the crowdfunding stuff, and sometimes you'll buy a dud like the ring, other times you might buy something like the, uh, the emotive headset. Think about how the people that you're interacting might want to use wearables, your customers, your clients, your people in the office, and just experiment and play, because that really is where all this technology is going to happen. It's going to come from people having a crack, thinking about things, trying new things, but doing it in an ecosystem which Melbourne is really well placed for. So, um, Ben, you will do the questions now, but anyway, I hope you found that useful, enlightening, and uh, at least exciting with Hardy's brain. Please, please, right now, give your ha hands up for uh, Pete and Hattie here. A great, great showcase. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Thanks. I think if you're, you're tweeting on this, you've now got to refer to Pete as uh, the digital Houdini. <laughs> Making things disappear together with Hattie. Fa fantastic demonstration. It's actually probably one of the best ones I've seen in years. Yeah. And uh, it's a privilege that you've been able to show that for us here today. I might just switch here. Actually, let me just uh, reach straight out to the audience. We're going to take probably two or three questions. and uh, <laughs> oh, We haven't finished yet. No, how about from you? Yeah, <laughs> That's right. Um, so remember, I've challenged you to ask questions here. Uh, it was a very comprehensive presentation and summed up beautifully there. I think that the final thing was people. Um, we've got some people in the room. Let's reach out and see if there's some questions from that. Uh, raise a hand. Yep, go for it. Uh, what do you see like wearables in the terms of let's say in Melbourne they have like a, it's pretty big on AFL and stuff like that. So in like fitness performance and tracking, is any companies in the world sort of doing fitness tracking performance? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I did a bit of work with a guy called Troy Flanagan who um, used to be at the Victorian Institute of Sport, but now is the coach of the U.S. snowboarding team. Yeah, he developed some some stuff uh, using the magnetic resonance of, of the Earth to be able to track down to a micro level 
you know, the athletes movement, all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of background research happening. I think what we're seeing come out right now is, is fairly basic stuff, but in terms of being able to, you know, you could have an epidermal computer on a player and get a huge amount more data. You know, at the moment they're wearing those sort of GPS trackers and heart rate monitors and stuff. Well, you take away those form factors and just turn it into a little sticker. So I think what we'll find and what you find with most technologies, it sort of disappears into the background. We don't see it anymore, even though it's there. And I think that's what we might see with wearables. It becomes part of the sort of sensor-aware communication network, but it's not obtrusive yeah. and we don't... I mean, the other one I talk a bit about other than epidermals is uh, incitables. You know, the computers you swallow. Um, with the cows, we used to stick a thing called a bolus in there. They've got four stomachs. We stuck it in their first one. So again, they, if you put it on their ears, sometimes they came off. So yeah, it's, yeah it, it'll disappear into the background, but our capacity to sense more, to do more and make more... Um, get more understanding from them, we'll just keep going up and up. And the other thing is, there's going to be a whole heap of weird ideas that nobody ever thought of that will be like, wow. So we're, we're, we're not even at the end of the beginning yet. We're very much still in the starters blocks. Cool, speaking, thank you. Speaking oh. of weird, have you got Hattie training up to do uh, flying drones just uh, with thought? Well, don't worry, the DJI <laughs> Phantom will be in the office next week. And by, uh, that's what I say, what he's doing today and what him and a couple of the guys in the office will be doing by the end of next week, I'm worried, but it, it'll be good. <laughs> no, you give a couple of engineers a little hack thing that nobody else has got, they just go ballistic, yeah. All right, great. We've just got a short amount of time here. We're running a little bit over, so I'm conscious this is an amazing uh, experience and a chance to even interact with Pete here. And, and so maybe take one, maybe two more. Yep, go for it. So when you were pioneering the internet, how did you predict this stuff was going to happen? So in pioneering the internet, how did you predict this I've got to make an, a, a confession here. I'm actually a chartered accountant. <laughs> and I was what they call a toe cutter or a company doctor. I was, I was too rough to be an auditor or a tax guy, so they put me into insolvency work. So it's the guy who comes and takes over companies and tries to solve them when they're in deep shit. Um, and I'd done that for about 13 years, and I was in the UK, and I used to live in Brighton, go to London, I'd read, oh, there's three million people on the internet, four million, five. I got to seven million, I'm like, what the hell's the internet? And there was an internet cafe near London Victoria Station, and I went in and said to this guy, show me the internet. Um, he showed me, I'm like, it was actually the Department of uh, Entomology at MIT University, I think it was. It's like, so, so there's a computer in Massachusetts that's coming, who owns it? No one, it's a protocol. And then sort of went through it and I just said, shit, this is gonna change everything. This is the biggest thing I'm ever gonna see in my life. It's bigger than electricity and I wanna be the best internet guy in Australia, notwithstanding I was an insolvency accountant in the UK. Um, but, but again, it was, for me, it was, I always saw that sort of possibility of, it's gonna keep getting refined and become more ubiquitous. And you know, I think it was Bill Gates who said, you know, we often underestimate the short-term impact of technology, but underestimate the long-term. And I, my, my sense is that this, this notion of hyper-connectivity, I keep saying to people, the biggest trend that's going on in technology now is not a technology trend, it's technology is connecting us all. The biggest thing is how we mobilise. We mobilise as, as a human race like never before, whether that's crowdfunding, whether it's Arab Spring, whether it's ISIS, whether it's an app, Apple development community. Our capaci capacity to mobilise almost on, on the fly is changing society. It's going to have a massive impact on democracy. We're already seeing it in election results where governments are being thrown out after one term, which was pretty well unheard of in Australia. So it's just that sort of notion of think, what does it mean when we're all connected? Um, and when we're prepared to sort of go forward and do things because we believe in them, not because some hierarchical model wants to do. The other one, if you sort of got me on a roll here, the other one is think, you know, complexity and agent-based systems as opposed to hierarchies. And I think that's why our institutions who think in hierarchical terms, like who signs off and shit versus 
communities and people mobilising through connectivity that says, hey, I want to do this as anybody on board, and boom, things happen. So to me, you know, it's like I'll probably die in the next 25 years, um, but the golden age is about to become honest and uh, the world's your, your oyster, and particularly ours in Melbourne, because I just think we've got such great foundations for what we do, and if we had an MBN, my God, but, you know, <laughs> work with what you've got, don't worry about what you don't. Yeah, no, that's a magnificent, and just to, just to quote your, your quote earlier, which I absolutely love, that Australians absorb tech like sponges, and that the institutions absorb like bricks, I think that's absolutely genius, and so why don't we throw that back out to the audience and say, please absorb like sponges, not just here at uh, the Pause Festival, but be, be one of those sponges that continues to inspire others as Pete and Hattie have done today. So please put that thing on the end of your hands together rapidly, make some noise and uh, mobilise the hands to thank these gentlemen. Thank you. Just, just in the interim as we move to the next speaker, we've got, uh, there's a number of fantastic speakers to come, so please stay with us. Uh, what we have and who we have next is someone who is multi-award winning. He's Absolutely. been involved in that intersection between user design, user experience and the creative space for uh, a number of agencies and now heading up creative for Reactive, a very well-known organisation here in Australia, been around for approximately 17 years and in fact just in the last month got bought out by, uh, it was uh, Accenture, that's right, Accenture Interactive and uh, so I will not spend too much time introducing him. He used to work with you, okay, that, <laughs> don't hold that against him, okay. <laughs> um, please put your hands together, welcome Tim Busing, Creative Director of Reactive. Thank you. Um, it's such a tough act to follow Pete. Um, I don't have any specific handsets or rings that fly around the room. Um, it's only me. This is my clicker, right? Yes. yes. Excellent. Um, so my talk is called Create to Innovate. What Pete has really done very well is paint the picture of where the whole development is going, you know, where the, where the industry, where the hardware industry is going, where the user adoption is going. Um, what we can do, my talk is really about framing it in an agency context because I think that um, many of you are very interested in the space, but I would, be, I would be not surprised if you said like, well, where do I start, right? It's not every day that somebody comes around the corner and says to you, hey, can you adopt a Fitbit style uh, wearable for my really complicated product? So um, this is just a uh, little screen of our work um, as Ben was saying, we've been around 17 years. Uh, I lead the Sydney office of Reactive. Uh, just for my own portfolio, I'm really passionate about connecting on and offline things, you know, be that in the wearable space or be that um, just with more um, kind of, uh, yeah, just fix it yourself devices. So this is a thing we did uh, two years ago for Converse and Google Plus. We connected a hangout to uh, a paintball shooting of the shoes. So you could basically dial into the hangout and tell our Chuck Norris um, look-alike there uh, to shoot the, the Chuck shoes. So that's why it's called Chuck a Chuck. It was quite a lot of fun. Um, basically the whole budget of this uh, activity was, was about two and a half thousand and two thousand went towards the mobile transmission of the data and 500 into renting that paintball range, which was really fun. 
Um, another project called Snake the Planet where I helped some friends document their idea of a facade projection game. So what they do is they analyze dynamically the facade of a building and turn that into a game level. Um, and then this um, funky looking trike there is uh, the, the computer and, the, and a huge battery actually of driving this projector um, to play live on any building you want. Uh, and lastly, this was the highly awarded campaign, the most powerful arm ever invented. Um, this was a Facebook-connected robotic arm that was steered by Facebook. So more or less, you could log into Facebook and authenticate yourself and send a signature to this robotic arm, who would then write a signature on this health-related petition, which was in favor of boys who have a genetic disease which actually uh, hampers their muscles uh, and muscular dystrophy. All of these campaigns have been hugely delightful for myself, um, and, and to various degrees they've, they've brought about... Oops, that's not supposed to happen. Thank you very much. Wrong button. Um, they've brought about some really good recognition, but I want to come to a more interesting question in this, uh, and that is the Industrial Internet of Things, IIoT, can contribute 14.2 trillion to the world output by 2030. So this is from an Accenture study. Um, painting how valuable space is if we all make the right uh, calls and the right investments. But we're here in Australia sort of trying to uh, get to the next project or maybe uh, create a startup on, on the back of that. And obviously we don't have 14 trillion in our coffers to, to start the project. Just one thing about semantics. Um, I personally don't like the term Internet of Things because it somehow implies that semantically there's another Internet which is for humans and the Internet of Things is sort of like, always sounds to me like Skynet, you know, you connect all these objects and then they have their own little Internet. Um, I like to call them connected objects but um, for the sake of the discussion which is essentially always about the same term Internet of Things, um, I just want to uh, use that. Um, this is a little question to you guys here, who is actually in a startup or a company that is actually working in this space and who is more in agency land or, or still a student? Um, the first one, startup company, anyone? Yep. And, and the other side, the agency student -y side? Yep. Okay, that seems to be like a third to two thirds. This photo here actually I plucked from Flickr. It's quite uh, remarkable to me that actually there is no visual difference between a startup or a digital agency. Um, does anyone want to take a guess what that is? It's a, it's a startup incubator, so more or less, but I, I could say our office looks exactly the same. Um, why aren't we agencies being inundated with briefs around the Internet of Things, you know? Um, th there have been first approaches, but actually if I look at what I'm currently working on, not many of them have to do with the Internet of Things, and why is that? So one reason is that we live in a world of uh, VUCA, v uh, so VUCA, or however you want to say that. It's the data that we receive constantly to make calls in the marketing departments, IT departments, and, and in companies is very volatile. It's very uncertain. It's sometimes conflicting, and it's ambiguous. So what that means is that everyone you deal with as a client has a hard time figuring out what the next solution for the next problem is. Sometimes they don't even know what the next problem really is before they can think about a brief um, to help you answer that problem. The second one is um, what you see is all there is. This is a theory from a, a Nobel Prize winning economics professor named Daniel Kahneman who's here in the picture. What he says is a, a bias in our thinking which relies on everything that you already know. What you see and what you know, what you can identify in your own thinking is all there is. And the Internet of Things, and I think Pete has made that very clear with his 
companion, um, there are so many things that we can't yet imagine doing, but you have to extrapolate and trust a certain amount of your intuition and sort of dive into that headspace. The third one here is yeah, one of my favorite lines when I, when I come to, to any project and really talk with clients about it is that 80% lies in the idea and the execution is the other 80%. The thing about creating anything in this space or in digital is that you start out with a fantastic idea. In the end, 80% later, um, it, it is a completely different idea. Or it might be still the same idea, but the execution changed it so much that you just couldn't imagine it in the beginning. And you just got to have a long long breath and a lot of stamina. Another a fourth reason why we're not being flooded with these briefs is that prove it is actually the kiss of death for most innovation projects. Roger Martin, uh, again an economics professor in, in, in the US, uh, has talked about this and it's so much easier, and this is just the human nature, it's so much easier to say why something wouldn't work rather than supporting something where your career is on the line. Everyone has a mortgage to pay, everyone has a career to look out for, everyone has somebody that he's reporting to or she's reporting to, uh, and so therefore it is a lot easier in any boardroom meeting to say like, yeah, not quite sure, maybe next year, you know, phase two, all these sort of answers that you're used to. And lastly, uh, it will get messy. So IoT briefs, um, if, if they come around, or any sort of projects like this, um, will get messy simply because you're suddenly switching not just computer work, um, and, and you're also looking at physical objects. You're starting to you know, uh, pile physical things together. You're starting to take them apart. There's a lot of benefit out of, uh, that comes out of thinking with your hands and really doing it, but um, for digital agencies and, and any agency, it's really a challenge to sort of get their hands dirty in there. Uh, this is a video here from our uh, most powerful arm, and I cherish this video, and especially this piece of paper here, which I still own, uh, which hangs on my wall above my desk, because it reminds me that um, you have to keep doing things to understand how to do them in the first place. So this is a very early prototype of the arm, um, writing a couple of names, one and uh, Emad. Emad is uh, actually the guy who built the, the arm there. Um, and that, that is just something that is so indicative of what it looks like when, when you work in this space. Now here's my uh, fancy chart that you can uh, steal at any point if you want to. Um, it's trying to draw a graph between schmickness and client engagement. And client engagement really stands for being able to sell this thing. Um, so at the bottom here we have, what the fuck is this? Uh, what I mean is, if you walk in with a really, really rough prototype where the idea doesn't become clear, um, you haven't really invested much, right? You haven't really invested into schmickness, but at the same time, the client has no idea what you're talking about. You might be so excited about this Arduino board, talking to this camera, doing this little thing on the side that connects to your mind, um, but the client just can't see what that has to do with what they're trying to do, which might be shifting product or, or helping their sales force um, be more effective. Now, somewhere in the middle here, you might be onto something where the schmickness is so high that the client can see the relationship to what they're doing, and they go like, ah, yeah, you're onto something, you know, keep going. And if you're lucky, they actually give you money for it. And then here at the top, you have, when can I have it? This is the moment where you actually walk in, you put it on the table, and they go like, wow, awesome. Top of the schmickness, meaning this is immediately usable, um, and the client is super engaged immediately when, when they see it. The problem is, 
you might be ending in this part of the graph, meaning you have an invested quite a lot of thinking, quite a lot of do doing and developing, and you've come to a point where you say, oh, well, that's, that's awesome, but you haven't really taken the client along the ride. You might be actually, the client might actually think like, oh, you're selling me something you've done in the past, which isn't really for me, and, and now you're trying to make me pay for it. Or maybe they, they think like, oh, yeah, but it's red, you know, we need, our, our brand is blue, or whatever it is. What you want to is you want to end up in this quadrant where the client engagement is really high, but at the same time you haven't over-invested, meaning if you're in a, a normal agency, you just can't invest that much into the schmickness, but at the same time the client has come along uh, on this journey. Now the question is, how do you get there without um, yeah, just investing into too many ideas? Um, hold on. And I'm just um, suggesting one uh, particular thing that we at Reactive have done now for three years, which is helping us a lot in, in achieving this sort of uh, client engagement early. You know who that guy is? Um, Tom Cruise. Does everyone know what he's saying there on the phone? Show me the money, exactly. So that is the internal agency resistance against over-investing. That is your... Uh, chief financial officer, that's your controller saying, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what are you doing in that lab? Nobody told you to do that. You know, and at the same time, you don't want to kill yourself spending every waking hour and sort of investing in your own time. So our solution is called R&D Days. Has been around since 2011. We do that quarterly. What are R&D Days? It is a full day. It's eight hours exploring trends, technology, and collaborate freely with clients on innovative ideas. Um, most importantly, it's teams of mixed backgrounds. So we pick a brief but the people who are in this team are completely diverse. So you have the person who's working in finance together with a person who does a reception, together with a developer, with a designer, with a strategist, different sized teams. Um, they, they pick a brief, some of them are self-written, some of them are actually worked up together with a client, um, and they work for eight hours on them, and they have a very limited time frame. And as you know, sort of uh, constraints can sometimes bring about great results. The phases are pretty obvious, you know, there's a discussion of the brief, hopefully that has already happened on our intranet beforehand. There's lots of research, um, diving into, you know, little explorations, maybe doing a photo journey, maybe following a customer through a typical um, journey that they do. Um, then there's obviously idea generation, a lot of paper prototyping, sketching going on, maybe some coding. Uh, and designing, maybe user interface, just to sort of be able to explain the idea. And lastly, after eight hours, um, we present back to the team. And that is a great moment where you can test your ideas after eight hours and really get good, valuable feedback and at the same time have fun and, and share the experience that you had along the way. Now, this has led to a long tail of ideas. We have about, uh, I think, 160 of these now in our intranet. And I would say roughly the, the ratio of projects that have gone into some sort of campaign work or some sort of service or some sort of project is about 10%. Now, when you say 10%, you might come back to the point, well, that's not really very effective, is it? Because you know, 90% of this stuff hasn't yet found its place. And now here's my reasons why you should still believe in this sort of method. One is you retain talent. Uh, we all know how hard it is to find people who can think you know, in this T-shaped way to, to, that are super experts in one direction and at the same time have a horizontal uh, capacity and we all know that there's lots and lots of companies out there who are seeking these people, so you want to retain them. 
Um, the next one is really self-directed training. If you look at this eight-hour uh, period and, and stretch it across a whole workforce, obviously you're investing quite a lot of money that uh, could be spent other, in other ways, but at the same time in agency land, training is always neglected. And I think I'm telling you nothing new that um, often when you look at your own training budget, it doesn't even exist or nobody's really talking about it. And self-directed is another bonus because you're allowing the people to actually choose whatever they want to learn and what they want to dive into. So there might be somebody who doesn't even code and suddenly wants to understand the basics of JavaScript. We also take a lot of this inspiration into our public performances. So when we go to talks, there's a lot of ideas that come out of R&D days that we then explore further in talks. Um, and we're also marketing the content quite obviously. Um, content marketing is something that agencies need to do as well, but often it's very hard for them to, to find things to talk about rather than retweeting stuff from, from Mashable. Uh, you want to come up with your own content. So it turns into uh, this, which we put out yearly called Perspectives. We do that uh, every year and it's a compendium out of all the offices that we have, everyone who works there. Um, you can go to Medium, for example, and find the perspectives 2014 of, of Reactive, which is kind of a bundling of all these insights and all this research that we've done. And lastly, there is a new business engagement component to it because um, there are clients that we have already invited, sometimes not even existing clients, where we've just said, look, no, no strings attached, it's eight hours, it's free, give us a brief, tell us about something that is really lying on your desk, which is sort of hairy, and you don't have a budget for it, you don't really know what to do with it, something niggling in the back of your mind, just throw it at us, let's write a brief together and, and maybe find a solution. So to wrap it up, I think, um, there's, there's a lot to be gained from the Internet of Things. There's a lot for agencies to do in that space, not just startups. Uh, and I hope that with this idea of the reactive R&D days or something of that nature in your unit, whatever your agency is like, uh, you might be able to find that quadrant and maybe lean more towards the hit than the miss. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, what I might do, I might ask you back up after the next yeah. presentation, and that way there'll be, I guess, a, a perspective from two different perspectives. So thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. Okay, so with that, we've got a bit of a framework about how agencies uh, are framing the, the creativity, and I picked up on the diversity aspect of getting ideas worked through, something that's practical, engaging in terms of users and their experiences. And the next perspective on that is a gentleman who's the group uh, account director for Buzz Products. Now, Buzz have done some very interesting things on an international scale. Probably, they're, they're definitely known here, but maybe not as much. They've worked with some very interesting corporations. You may have heard of Bud Light, although uh, out here probably more on uh, the, the last, about two weekends ago when we had the Super Bowl, as we call uh, well, they refer to it as football. Uh, it's certainly not football to us, but gridiron. And uh, we'll get um, a perspective from Travis on that. But not to mention the, the perspective of also creating products as leveraging the Internet of Things in a way which is what you would call business to business. Uh, there's also some examples of business to consumer, but I can't think of uh, too many other organisations in the world that are leading the space and certainly with uh, the penetration of these types of ideas as well. So there's going to be some really good showcasing of here of uh, some practical things that have been developed out of Buzz products here in Melbourne and taken to the world. So please welcome Travis Crothers to the stage. Thanks everyone. 
Can I just um, just to understand who who's attending their first IoT event? Oh, great. Okay. And who's who's done a few now and and might be a, a little bit of a, an IoT veteran? Awesome. Great. Okay. I think what we hear a lot at these events is the word imagine, and I love it. I find it quite inspiring. Um, it allows you to, to think of all the possibilities. Um, you know, like, imagine that you could be on a beach in the Bahamas and turn on your kettle in Coburg. Actually, why? Why would you do that? And what we really need to make sure that we're doing while we're on the IoT journey is make sure that you're keeping it relevant and real. Because what you can find is in the quest to connect every little thing that you can think of, you can lose the relevance and you can lose the reason of why you'd want to have a product connected. I actually um, switched on the Today Show last month and there was a, a live cross to the, the CES in Las Vegas. And the reporter was talking about that this year's show was all about the connected home. And that was actually the first example he gave, was about the connected kettle, that you could get your smartphone out and turn it on from anywhere in the world. Hmm. So anyway, what I want to talk to you guys today about is, is Buzz and how we play a role in the Internet of Things and the connected product space. I think what's exciting about where we're at is that today I can share with you four examples and it's not about the imagine, it's about what we've actually done. It's about what clients have paid lots of money for because as Ben uh, touched on, traditionally we're a B2B company. So um, I think this will tie in beautifully to the, to the last presentation in that we are designing, developing, manufacturing and deploying hundreds of thousands of connected products all over the world today for the biggest brands in the world. So just a quick bit about Buzz. So we are a product design agency and we, to make it really simple, think of ideas, we design them, we make them, we connect them, we monitor them and we analyse them. We have um, been awarded BRW's third most innovative company and we're a company of just over 100 people, started right here in Melbourne about 17 years ago. And I think the other thing that's really important to understand around connected products is that the te technology should never lead the idea. If you're sitting in a room thinking what can we do with RFID or what can we do with motion sensors or what can we do with Bluetooth low energy, you've got it all wrong. So for us, it's about solving our clients' challenges or industry challenges and then if there's relevant technology that can be applied to that, that's what we should use. Although we sometimes do products that are not connected either. So we're not sitting in a room trying to force the Internet of Things. 
We're not trying to make things relevant through connectivity, but where it's possible, we'll definitely do it. And we're lucky enough to work with some of these clients globally. And what we know is that when delivered the right idea, big brands have got an absolute appetite for this stuff. And the reason is, is because you can actually use the products that they're deploying as business transformation tools. And so I'll share with you a few examples today. I've got four examples. The first one is a product that uh, a few of you may have seen in the airline space. The second one is going to be a Wi-Fi enabled hockey goal light. This one here. If anyone starts to get a little bit snoozy at any stage through the show. I'll just make sure I can keep you all awake. Um, the third one is about replenishment in the refrigeration space. And then the last example is going to be around medical compliance. So let's talk about the first one. Has anyone done much travel through the United States? I tell you, it's a nightmare. Coming from someone who's uh, done 20 trips in the last three years over there, Good for frequent flyers, not good for your patients. And so one of our clients, Qantas, challenged us around the efficiency of the check-in process. And so if you're talking about a business transformation tool, they were looking for something that could not only streamline that process, but at the same time deliver cost savings for them as a business. And what they did really well here is they actually turned it into a loyalty play. So when you received your Qantas RFID bag tag, it was about status. It was about you're a gold or a bronze or a platinum. But in its simplest form, for them it was to save money and to make your experience better in the airport. Any Canadians in the audience? Nope. Anyone ever been to Canada? Canadians love hockey. Absolutely love it. It's their religion. So Budweiser challenged us with how can they bring the stadium experience of an ice hockey game into people's homes. So I'm not sure if anyone's aware, but when you score a goal in ice hockey, in the stadium a red light goes off behind the goals and a big siren goes off. So the brief to us was we want to create a hockey goal light that you can sync up to your favourite team and it goes off whenever your favourite hockey team scores. Wherever you are in the world. So we designed and developed a game sync Wi-Fi enabled hockey light through the Budweiser app that you sync up to your favourite team or if you're in a home that's got three or four different teams that are supported by the family, sync it up to all of those teams the technology with this now allows Budweiser to talk through the unit to consumers in their home. It's also now clever enough that if you're watching a game in your house and your buddy's watching it across the other side of the country, you can record a message in your smartphone and trash talk him and it will come out through his red light. So Budweiser, we're a little bit sceptical about adopting the Internet of Things 
and what this might look like. When they launched their TVC for the launch of the red light on Super Bowl three years ago, they quickly changed their mind when they sold out in just over five hours and consumers were paying $200 a unit. Unprecedented for a consumer to be paying money for a beer promotional product. Most of us are used to going into a bottle shop and seeing a stubby holder when you buy a six pack or buy a slab of VB and you might go in the drawer to win an esky. So they really took a risk. But now three years down the track, and based on confidentiality, I can't, I can't share the exact numbers, but let's say it's somewhere between 40 and 60,000 of these red lights that Budweiser have sold to consumers at $200 a pop and growing. And next year, with a view to take it into the United States, that's only in Canada. So what we know is consumers have an absolute appetite for this stuff. As you can see, after the success of the Canadians, their big brother in America said to us, hey, that's super cool. What's the version we could do of that for football? Is this plugged in? Yeah. Oh, here we go. So, of course, the Americans, not to be outdone by the Canadians, wanted the football version. And, of course, the Americans, having somewhat more flair in their personality, of course, didn't just want a light and a siren, but they wanted all the bells and whistles. So it lights up. It actually plays the national anthem three minutes before the kickoff of every football game. I know, who would think? Uh, you can actually run Twitter feeds through it, so you can tweet your friends, uh, sync it up to your fantasy football. So it's really exciting that brands now are adopting these kind of products. And as I said, it's good for us at these events to talk about the imagine and seeing all the wonderful things about sensors on your brains and stuff. But there is simple applications in the Internet of Things space that brands can use as marketing tools now. Budweiser can communicate one-to-one -one with their consumers with the red light. They actually have an 80% open rate on EDMs. And I'm not sure if anyone's clear of electronic marketing, but on average for a marketing campaign, if you hit somewhere around 20%, you've done well. 25% you nailed it. These guys over three years, for over 40,000 of their fan consumers, have an 80% open rate for communication with their clients. They are screaming for more, they love it. So now we'll move on to the Imagine space. Who's ever got home from work, had a hard day, opened the fridge and you're out of beer or wine? And you're like, damn it. It's Friday night, you've got the boys coming over, the footy's on. Well, this is a product that we're currently developing. It's the beer fridge that never runs out of beer. 
So sure, the next area I'm gonna share with you around medical compliance is probably a little bit more serious and how you can use IoT, but there's some fun that we're having with this one. So what would you do? Well, you'd talk to your fridge through your app and you'd say, I never wanna have less than 12 beers in my fridge. When you take out the 12th beer, you get a message pinged to you. It's a coupon to say, hey, Trev, you're running low on beer. Would you like to order more beer? Here's 25% off a case of VB at Dare Murphy's. Absolutely. Why wouldn't I do that? But what about if it becomes a beer home delivery unit? So as soon as you pull out that 12th beer, it just pings you a message to say, you're running low on beer, press here to order more, and the Uber of beer shows up to your front door within two hours with two cases, icy cold, ready to fill. Now the great thing is with this, is you're getting, as far as from a brand's perspective, you're getting real-time messaging from a beer brand at the right time, when you're ready to buy beer. How powerful for a beer brand to be able to talk to you at the very time when you're gonna need to buy more beer. But now our fridge can be a learning fridge because what I'm also gonna do is add all of the excitement and the elements of sports celebration here into my beer fridge. So I'll sync it up to my favorite footy team. Now the beer fridge knows that I watch the footy with five or six mates and usually there's anywhere between 25 and 40 beers taken out of the beer fridge when Carlton play footy. It's gonna know when my team schedule is and send me a reminder to say, hey Trav, Carlton are playing footy this Friday night, you've only got 12 beers, do you wanna order more beer? And when we score a goal, my fridge will go up in celebration with me. Who knows, maybe it'll even vend a cold one so we can celebrate together. The other great thing is, has anyone ever left the home and left a teenage child in the house when you've gone away for a weekend? And you come home and the booze cabinet might be a little bit shorter than before you left. So I can set this up so that when I'm away for the weekend and someone else gets into my beer fridge, it'll ping me a message. Imagine your teenager's son surprised when you ring up and go, put those three beers back. Be like, what? How does he know that? The great thing here though is that these beer brands will know the location of the fridges. So we can start to give them information and analytics around a cluster of fridges. Maybe there's 5,000 fridges within a 10 mile radius north of Chicago. And so if we wanted to do a campaign or a promotion, we could drop a star football player because we know maybe who your football team is to come in and knock on your door and they're gonna deliver your two slabs of beer. There's all kinds of exciting things that the brands are eating up because these are now not just a beer fridge, but they're a business transformation tool for big brands. So that's a lot of the fun stuff. And when we were doing sessions, building prototypes for beer companies, we used to often joke about keeping it real. We're not saving lives here, people. And then we thought, well, could we? Could we save lives? I'm sure 
We've all been exposed from time to time of having to help out maybe one of our parents or a child who needs constant medication. Medical compliance kills 125,000 Americans a year from people not taking their meds at the appropriate time. 125,000 people a year. And they say that they think it costs the American healthcare system somewhere in the vicinity of $200 billion a year because people forget to take their meds. So what about if you can design a product that will alert mum when it's time to take her medication? As a business transformation tool, it's wonderful for the pharmacy because they get to lock in someone's meds for a constant amount of time. And then if mum forgets to take her meds, half an hour later, it'll start to glow, sending a gentle reminder. 15 minutes after that, there'll be a noise sounded out. Half an hour after that, mum would get a text, and so would I as her carer. So I can jump on the phone and say, hey mum, everything all right? Oh yes dear, just been out doing the roses. But it allows you to ensure that you're actually taking your meds on time. And it becomes a really important business tool for those type of companies and the pharmacists. So there's four examples uh, in four different spaces. Has anyone got any questions for any of those? Sure. Absolutely. So what it actually does is that it, it would provide a, a unit for the tablets to go in. And so um, I know as an example people that need to take seven or eight different pills throughout a day and that might be two at 8am, uh, another two at 10pm. So what this does is it's actually in a, a roll of satchels that the pharmacist can fill and at the appropriate time it's just releasing the meds that you need. Because otherwise a lot of the time what happens is you might have a 30-day pill box and then you're like, oh, did I, I don't know if I took Tuesdays, I don't know if I took it at 8 o'clock. So it's just releasing the meds at the appropriate time. So what we're really excited about is, is the opportunity around this space for end-to-end -end solutions. And so we design and manufacture these products. We develop the apps that go with them. But where the power for our brands lies at business transformation tools is in the database and the insights that we can provide them in real time on things like if a fridge has broken down, we can let them know. And maybe not as important when we're talking beer, but if we're talking vaccine fridges in hospitals, absolutely. I'm not sure if anyone heard, but last month the RPA had a, a vaccine fridge that was at the wrong temperature. They found out that it was at the wrong temperature for 14 months. And so now there's thousands of mums of newborn babies who have been contacted to come back in and they need to be tested again to see if the vaccine worked for their child or not. So that's when 
we can start to look at having monitored refrigeration units in hospitals because something like that would be very, very easily tracked. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Please stay on stage, Travis. And if we can invite the uh, previous speaker up as well. Yeah, please come up. I guess just to reintroduce Tim, having presented earlier, uh, the commonality here is obviously, you know, specialising in a space that today's topic's all about, Internet of Things. How do you see uh, the, I guess, the idea generation coming to you? How, you've showed an example on your intranet. You've got a lot of ideas that you're looking to put out into practice. What's the way in which, um, just out giving a bit of perspective as well, what, uh, from a commercial point of view, is driving these? Because I'm very interested to understand a bit more about how Internet of Things is really solving a problem. Mm. And maybe you could comment on that. That would be great, Tim. Well, I could um, maybe give you an example. One of our clients is Weight Watchers. And um, as, as you can imagine, they, they are very interested in using the Internet of Things and using Fitbits and, and whatever we can sort of imagine to change people's behavior. The more you understand the brand and, and the challenge of the company as a whole, the more you sort of start to think, well, it can't be just newsletters. It can't be just sort of videos of people who have lost weight in the past. It, it, it must be more. Um, and so that infuses the process when we start writing briefs internally, when we try to come up with ideas and then we involve them um, to shape these briefs a bit more. Uh, ultimately, one of the R&D days brought about a new way how to uh, interpret meetings. You know, their classic product is get people getting together in the real world and encouraging themselves and each other to uh, to stay on track. Um, yeah, and, and we just sort of reframed how you look at people coming to these meetings and ultimately uh, with the innovation coming from the US uh, with a Fitbit, how Fitbit and the app that Weight Watchers has built on top uh, can be part of meetings. <laughs> Hope that became clear. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and Travis, in the case of Buzz, just comparative to Tim's view of reactive there and the reactive agency, what's, uh, you, you outlined quite a big vertical integration of that thinking through to execution and certainly in your profile and background, that, that uh, intersection between entrepreneurship and innovation is obviously very important too. And you've given us some great examples that obviously have tremendous engagement far beyond what is the norm. So give us an idea in your space. How is it that uh, you're so close to, uh, I guess, the need and the problem and, and that, that magic source that, that yeah. gets that sort of results with your connected products? Yeah. Um, I think absolutely, you know, spending as much time with your clients and understanding what their challenges are as possible is key. Um, as an example, you know, with the, with the connected beer fridge, we knew that 80% um, that of beer is consumed in people's homes in America, yet um, the big brands are spending tens of millions of dollars a year on trying to gather information and insights on shopper behaviour and consumption in supermarkets and bottle shops, but also in bars. But then there was this light moment where they've said, hang on a minute, but 80% of beer is being consumed in people's homes. How do, we, how do we connect with that? How do we find out those kind of things? So it's critical that from there you're understanding what, what a big problem may be and then taking them the solution. And as I, I said in my uh, talk, that um, at no stage do we go in and talk anything about technology to our clients. And realistically, it's irrelevant. 
and they don't they don't need to know what's driving what this thing does they need to know what it's going to do for them and how it's going to transform their business and i think that's um, that's been the challenge and uh, and understanding what tim said earlier around you know the the 10 percent of these clients are going to adopt or take on but it's it's a big scary space for a lot of people and particularly in an industry in in brand marketing where although they they like to think they're challenging the norm often they're not and so rather than talk to talk to our clients about what we think we should do we actually do it and take that to them and show them and um and we find that once it's in front of them and we've shown them the possibilities of what this thing can do um the rest looks after itself nice okay so with that we've got time maybe for just one quick question we're conscious of time we want to get on to some other fabulous presenters and, and definitely appreciate the time of both tim and travis here so uh who's it going to be uh who hasn't asked a question yet maybe up the back if you want to call it out So the question is, in the case of the uh, smart dispenser, what sort of time do you take, given the, the importance and, and safety aspects of it, uh, what sort of time do you spend in that? And, and I guess to broaden that, it might be good to get an idea of the, the length of campaigns, Tim, as well. You gave an example of a one-dayer, mm. just to get an idea of, say, with the, uh, the Weight Watchers example and so on. Yeah, yeah if you want to go, Travis. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, it, th there's, a, there's a whole different layer of complexity when you're talking like a, a beer product versus medical compliance um, so we spend a lot of time looking at all the legalities that's involved with that and obviously uh, we've got an in-house legal team that to, that need to spend a lot of time ensuring that we're going to be covered and ultimately we can provide these kind of connected products for people and the meds could still be dispensed at 8am whether or not then my mum actually takes those meds or they're all just popping out again is, is a whole different thing. So um, as far as legalities, we, we need to cover ourselves quite tightly on that. And maybe I can bring in another client that we have, which is ResMed. They produce sleeping masks for people who have sleep apnea, which is a very dangerous device, uh, disease, sorry, not the devices. Um, they obviously help um, prevent heart diseases and, and other things. And in order to provide good explanation of how these devices work and to monitor what people are doing and feeding that data back to the clinician, um, there's a huge amount of legalities involved and, and there's a certain factor, I would say almost half of the project time is not necessarily spent on legal, but half of it is slowing the project down. So if you said like, okay, we're spending 10, 10 working days on something, there might be another 10 working days that just pass because things need to be approved or a certain way understood, mm. right? So they are slower projects, obviously. Uh, and I think even in, in beer fridges, uh, there's a certain amount of responsible drinking or whatever sort of to be considered. Um, and yeah, it, it always plays a crucial role, which lies completely outside of the user experience that you, you know, are thinking about or, or the creative stuff that you want to do. And I would, I would say, you know, from, from ideation to us deploying Internet of Things connected products into market would be anywhere between sort of eight and, and 18 months, um, depending on the complexity. And a, a fridge, as an example, we're currently um, pushing the fridge out into four different 
markets, so North America, Europe and South America, all got a lot of different electrical compliance and testing that needs to be done. So, um, you know, and, and we're, we're pretty upfront with our clients that if they're wanting to do something in this space that they, um, they're not going to get something turned around in three or four months. Okay, in the interest of time, please put your hands together. First of all, Tim from Reactive and uh, Travis from Buzz Products. Fantastic to have you guys here. Thank you. Okay, so. Thank you. And we're going to continue with the advertising of Bud Light, unpaid for, but uh, no. <laughs> Who'd like to get their hands on one of these? Show of hands. Yeah, I wouldn't mind. In fact, uh, not just, obviously, uh, your local team, for those that, I guess, follow sport around the world, whatever it might be. I think that's uh, a fantastic creative innovation there. And what we've also heard about is, is things that are very practical. And the, the next presentation is two gentlemen. They've flown down from Sydney to share this with you. Very practical application of wearable technologies. And, we, and I guess the best way to introduce both Joe and Max is to... Uh, say that they're going to present it in a way that's extremely relevant, practical, and, and technology that would become relevant in our daily lives. And with that, I'd like you to put your hands together and, and welcome Joe Millwood and Ryan, uh, sorry, <laughs> Joe Millwood and uh, Max Ryson from Lifeable. Please put your hands together. Good afternoon, everyone. As, um, as uh, Ben thankfully um, introduced us, my name is Max Ryerson. Uh, this is Joe Millward, and together we're the co-founders of Lifeable, uh, one of Australia's leading wearable technology manufacturing companies. And today we're here to talk to you about how wearables um, are here to help you do your everyday easier. So. Technology has always um, struggled and engaged in a battle between form and function. Um, <laughs> between form and function. So uh, clearly um, what we see today is, uh, is that that gap between form and function is, is increasingly shrinking over time as advancements in technology and consumer adoption becomes more and more rapid. In fact, what we believe is that today, products um, in this consumer market that is more and more discerning need to actually deliver form and function simultaneously as rapidly as possible in order to maximize adoption of the product. Today, we'd like to explore the pressures of delivering technology that's not only a pleasing form, but has that functionality and features. To give context to this uh, current state of wearables, we thought it was important to go back to where the fascination of wearables began. Didn't think you'd see a pocket watch. Oh, wearables. <laughs> so the pocket watch was actually created in the 16th century. The form and function hasn't changed too much. It didn't change too much until uh, about the 19th century. So um, by the mid-19th century, watchmakers really focused on form, actually much more than function. And they focused on creating bracelets, as you see up here, um, targeting a female audience, which was quite revolutionary for the time. 
Um, and in fact, the timepiece was actually much less relevant than what the bracelet was actually going to look like. So during the Boer War, there was a real f uh, focus on delivering uh, technologies, I guess, that could help coordination of troops and also simultaneously uh, being able to uh, coordinate attacks as well. Uh, so this is where Mappen and... Sorry, um... Um, Mappen and uh, Web. <laughs> yes, <laughs> basically created the, web, uh, the watch uh, you see here on the wrist. So Mappen produced uh, and Web produced these watches. Um, so if, uh, soldiers could focus on the function and accuracy. These watches were rudimentary in design, so they were actually pocket watches that were strapped to a wrist with a leather band. Um, but then eventually, features such as water resistance and luminous dials were added. Um, to increase uh, assistance on the battlefield. So, <clears throat> so what was really interesting is that, um, again, we're seeing innovation being led by a, a military need. Um, and it wasn't until 1904 that uh, Louis Cartier, uh, who's sort of acknowledged as the father of the first wrist-based watch, uh, delivered this particular watch. And it was... Actually, uh, after speaking to a really good friend of his, uh, the Brazilian aviator Alberto Santos, who actually said to him, listen, Louis, I think this pocket watch is really cumbersome, and I'd like to put it on my wrist. I think that would be a great invention. So Louis went ahead and created the Santos watch. Um, and it was the first time that we were starting to see form being the general, um, the, the central piece, but also adding all of the accuracy that had been developed for the military initially. So this was probably the most accurate timepiece of the time uh, in 1904. So moving towards uh, the First World War, they actually realized that uh, something beautiful like that wouldn't work. So they added functionalities here, such as a protective grill. Uh, these things were still highly accurate, um, as, as the requirements of coordinating tanks as well as troops was more important, but not particularly beautiful, uh, more focusing on function. And then we moved into... Um, 1917, in fact, right, right towards the end of the First World War. And again, Cartier, who was designing these watches, um, started to take inspiration from tanks. Uh, in, in fact, this is the legendary tank watch by Cartier. And it was the first example of actually form being inspired by the function the watch was designed for. So moving into the digital age, uh, 1957, uh, the uh, Hamilton Watch Company created the first digital watch. Uh, these needed to be constantly repaired. Uh, so this really shows uh, where function precedes form. So you're pushing the limits of technology. Um, these things got replaced all the time. Um, and they weren't particularly appealing. They were nowhere near as appealing as their analog cousins. So Pete spoke uh, briefly about Steve Mann. Um, Interestingly enough, and we, uh, he obviously spoke about the technology, uh, we're more worried about the, the, the form of this. So it's, Steve pretty much didn't care about form, didn't care about scaring Parisians or whatever. Uh, so he was pretty much looking at function completely. Uh, and if you look forward to today, we've got all these amazing he uh, heads-up display eyewear technology, but they're all still pretty ugly. So they're still trying to work out this feature technology part um, without actually thinking about, will I look like an idiot wearing Google Glass? So hopefully, as, um, as the market starts to see a lot more value in these devices, we're going to start to see a refinement in style. 
this is an example of Google Glass by the Danish designer um, Jonas Dernhardt. And I think that you know, we're starting to see form and function coming together to deliver a product that people will actually want to wear. So uh, Wearable World estimates the uh, wearable products market at $30 billion by 2018. So the interesting thing with this is we've seen a gold rush of products um, for pretty much every part of the body. You look at those different areas. Um, and they're, they're focused a lot around health and fitness, entertainment and lifestyle, which I don't, I'm not sure what lifestyle exactly is. But, um, but with companies doing this and they're rushing into the market, they're not actually... Um, thinking about the true utility of, of these devices. I mean, it's all well and good to understand what your steps are, but how relevant is that to your daily life? So at Lifeable, we, we decided to take a, a different approach, and we wanted to focus on utility over form and function to start with. So how many of you here in the audience have a wallet in your pocket today? Can, can you please take that wallet out? <laughs> This is, this is my wallet eventually, but this is my wallet currently today, right? So Joe and I decided that um, we wanted to solve this issue of having to carry so many cards. And, um, and so we started to think it was, it was quite very clear from us from the, the, the get-go that um, we needed to deliver a solution that was going to help our users simplify things that they did, they did in their everyday life. And when we started looking at that, we started to realize that there were three key activities that most of us do absolutely every day. One, we pay for things, and mostly with a card, especially here in Australia. Um, we travel, we buy car, we get on a bus, on a train, we need to get on a plane. We need to access buildings, gyms, hotel rooms, uh, events, and eventually your home. Um, as we've heard you know, previously, uh, the connected house will, is the house of the future, and we'll get to that point. So we've created a little video just to try and help you imagine where we see the direction of, of wearables and the potential of simplifying your everyday life. And just uh, to Travis's point before, while uh, imagine's a great word, we're actually applying this technology. Imagine life without carrying so many cards, but still using as many as you want, never having to take anything out of your pocket or purse. Imagine life without the frustration of finding the right card. Eliminate the risk of losing your credit cards, access pass, travel card, or house keys. Imagine life being more convenient, where doing what you do every day is easy, where you do every shop, trip, visit, game, race, sale, lunch, dinner, drive, flight, cruise, workout, Holiday, purchase, every day, easy. Introducing Lifeable, where our products and solutions make your everyday easy. Thank you. <laughs> um, so where we started um, was Genesis. Uh, so this was basically us hacking together ideas and trying to work out if this thing was actually possible. Um, and as Rexton mentioned before, it was actually accessible to us. We were able to basically go and 3D print 
something. Um, while this thing is, is very, uh, I guess, less pleasing to the eye, um, we wanted to focus on functionality first, um, which is really important, making sure that the cards were actually going to be readable. Um, so we did have working prototypes. Um, they're actually able to uh, read things and, and emulate uh, both credit card and, and access card uh, functionality. So then we started to look at, OK, well, that's chunky. Um, few people are really going to want to wear it. But we're proving a concept that we can deliver multifunction uh, on your wrist. So we started to move towards uh, form. And we created the Alpha 1, which is what Joe and I are currently wearing. Um, so we started to look at how do we actually make that smaller, streamline it, become a little bit more aesthetically pleasing, looking at different fabrics. Uh, this is particularly leather, but you know we're, we're exploring uh, carbon fiber and Kevlar and, and a whole bunch of other things. And our industrial designer is currently working on, on different models uh, from, a, from a form factor, having already nailed the functionality part. And again, by the time we come to market, we will have a product that really emulates both form, function, and our third pillar, which is utility. So yeah, looking at ut uh, utility, um, we really wanted to make sure that this was something that people would use every day. Um, I don't like people buy a Fitbit, you run around with it on your wrist for three months, um, and you get a bit bored with it because it's not giving you data that's actually valuable enough. Um, while it's interesting, and if you are training for a marathon or something like that, it's, it's something you can use. Um, but you're not using it every single day. So what we're looking at um, is basically banned by lifeable. Um, and this shrinks the gap between form and function. Um, we'll be able to deliver an enhanced watch band that will complement any watch. So if you've got a smart watch, a digital watch, or an analog watch, we're able to completely complement you with that. And that's where, that's where we see the true value of you know, the ultimate accessory for the watch lover. All of a sudden, you're marrying you know, time uh, movement craftsmanship with 21st century technology. And you deliver something that is entirely useful, that has, uh, ticks all the boxes in terms of form, and has all the functionality you can possibly imagine. So we're, we're uh, currently uh, exploring opportunities um, with Australia's leading banks, leading airlines, transport, um, as well as building access companies. So <clears throat> lastly, um, where we see the future of wearables is in products and solutions that deliver utility, form, and function in order to help the user do everyday easy. Thank you very much. Nice one. Max, if you want to sure. Thanks. take a seat, and we'll take some questions from the audience. So. Who wants their life to be made easier? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, we'll just let them settle. And I can see there's a question. Uh, yeah, back. Do you want to announce that out? Yeah, so we're working with... Sorry, um, can we just repeat the question? So essentially, uh, the question is about security and, and specifics. What are some of the other areas you've looked at, such as authentication beyond just the, uh, the securing of sensitive information? Move beyond credit cards. Yeah, so we're working with um, a company by the name of AB Note. Um, so AB Note stands for American Bank Note Company. So they actually created the US dollar. Uh, they do all the passport control for the US. 
Uh, they actually uh, also do everything from ING. You can actually see on your credit cards which, which Perso, which their name is a Perso company, personalization company, uh, your credit card's made by, and they're one of the biggest in the world. Uh, so while we're, we think of uh, how the devices are going to look and, and how you guys are going to want to use them, we are partnering with two of the largest companies in the world. So those guys do the actual personalization. And we've got a chip manufacturer uh, who actually worked uh, with the uh, Qantas guys on the um, bag tags uh, to actually deliver that technology as well. So they're working in partnership with us. Uh, so while we are a startup, we've got the two of the world's biggest companies doing that. Other questions there in the audience? Just looking out. Yeah, please. So how's Lifeable differentiating themselves in terms of digital wallets from, say, the Apple Pay and, and Google Wallet? Yeah, I think um, I, I, the big difference for us, um, we're very similar. Uh, to it's, From a functionality point of view, we're very similar. So you know, our solution will be a, a digital wallet of some form. Um, but where we differ is really in, the, in delivering the solution and making sure that it is always available for the user. So, our device is not powered. Uh, there is no battery. It is really the same functionality as a credit card. Um, and therefore, you know, you're not going to need to recharge it. It's not something that all of a sudden, you know, whether it's the Apple Watch or your phone, is going to die and you can't use the functionality anymore. So we're kind of thinking about it from a point of view of what is the user experience and, and how will that you know, benefit the user at the end of the day. So. The other part also is we can complement um, Android Wear, Apple Watch, by actually replacing the, the dumb band that they've got attached to that device. Uh, so you're actually getting the best of both worlds by having a lifeable band. The other part um, is you're not, you, you aren't able to get building access because there's no RF, RF in any of those technologies. Um, so you, uh, they're only serving payment pretty much. Um, and we're opening this completely up. So it'll be completely open platform where people can say, we'd love to have so you're getting feedback. Um, I'd love to have, um, love to have our, our functionality on the watch um, or the, or the, uh, the wearable. Uh, so we're actually not restricting people to um, apply to get, get access to that as well. Uh, just to add to that, I think it was interesting that you laid out the different use cases there and, and obviously have a really deep understanding of those use cases, which sort of goes beyond, say, those two scenarios, just the question from the audience, where Google and Apple are obviously very interested in owning the payments. Uh, was it difficult for you to sort of narrow that down? Because obviously the technology you're dealing with can do so much. Why is it so important to just focus on those key things for you? Um, I, I think it's because, again, we, there are a number of examples in the market today that focus on one particular stream. Uh, so payments is, is a classic one. So obviously, you know, Apple, uh, doing Apple Pay, we, we saw the likes of Barclays Bank in the UK do a band, and it was a payment band, Mastercard uh, backed, and um, and that's all fine. But we see that uh, very much like the the exercise band and the, the Fitbits and so forth, it's just one utility. Um, and ultimately, you know, I'm wearing two bands, but you don't want to start to have a band for you know here's my wallet, here's my activity, mm -hmm. here's my access, you know here's my loyalty. And um, we just thought that being able to focus on at least three functions that kind of cover as much of what you might do every day was the way to go. Great. Are there any I'll room for one more question? Yes, please. Um, so what's stopping you from just 
Yeah, definitely. So we're. So what's the reason that you're focusing on the watch as that function and form? That's the yeah, question. Yeah, uh, I guess it's uh, a things people understand. They've been around since the uh, 1900s, um, and there's a, that demand. Like, uh, but we're we're definitely not closing the door to anything in particular. So we are broadly looking at different products, um, and we'll learn stuff on the on the wrist-based wearable. Um, we may be able to apply it to other things. Yeah, I think um, uh, just. On that as well, where you know we're not—I mean, we are obviously delivering a product, but for us, that's what's delivering the experience. So what we're what we're building is actually a user experience with an ecosystem of partners that allows the user to do whatever they want. Now, whether that's going to be a, a watch band or a wristband or a key or a fob or whatever it might be, is something almost secondary to us. Um, the reason, again, you know, is the validation of other players in the market, such as you know the Apples and the Googles, going you know. The wrist is a valuable commodity today in terms of wearables. Um, it's something that people find easy to understand. And it doesn't mean that we need to go spend a few billion dollars trying to educate a market. Um, we're letting Apple and Google do that for us. And just lastly on that, um, with the analog watch market, I mean, if you've got a $20,000 Bretling watch, it doesn't matter how beautiful the $300 Apple Watch is. You, it's really a struggle for you to give up that wrist space. But if we can enhance the watch band of these high-end watches, or any watch that's an analog watch, um, you're able to have both the best, uh, best of both worlds again. Excellent. All right, well, please put your hands again, together. Please thank Joe and Max from Lifeable. Excellent presentation. Thank you, thank you guys. Good luck Thanks. as well. Thanks, Ben. So I have the pleasure of introducing the next speaker who sure. has a focus on health and as far as experience, uh, it's really second to none. Uh, Alex is actually has a background in terms of innovation and mobile with Medibank and I have the pleasure of collaborating with uh, Alex over the last couple of years with Mobile Monday here in Australia as well. And in addition, uh, Alex is a, a very accomplished entrepreneur having developed startups here in Australia and taken them off to Japan and across Asia. And uh, it's my pleasure to welcome him here as the founder of Asia Health Startups and That's to awesome. share a little bit more about Internet of Things, health, and to really get your eyes popping and uh, sure. definitely challenge you and uh, to challenge your thinking about health as well. So to take Internet of Things into the area of health, please put your hands together for Alex Young. Thanks a lot for that, Ben. Um, so to the 20-odd people that we've got left in the room who weren't expecting me, this is going to be a, a slightly different approach to uh, what we're presenting because I'm not, I'm actually independent. I'm not present, representing Medibank at the moment. Um, I don't have an agenda beyond helping you educate you when it comes to the why, the how and the what when it comes to um, healthcare and the role of wearables and the internet of things. So I'm going to take the approach of Simon Sinek in terms of the why, the how, the what, because the purpose um, has been spoken about very lightly, um, but there's a real reason and driver for this type of technology. So the why. Um, this was released last year as a government report, which is often quoted by Medibank. 90% of deaths in Australia were caused by chronic disease. So chronic disease, there's about eight different categories that are the main focus within Australia at the moment. And that's inclusive of arthritis, asthma, cancer, cardiovascular health, diabetes, injury pre prevention and control, mental health and obesity. 
These are the core components of chronic disease. Um, it's astounding to see this, but even for us in the room, we need to consider our own futures and the futures of our families and children and what can we do to actually affect that. Now, there are things that we can't control, the environment, uh, social factors, genetic factors, um, environmental factors, a whole lot of different things, but there is one category of components, which is behavior that we can control. So smoking, physical inactivity, poor nutrition and um, alcohol are all drivers or, or reasons why uh, chronic disease is increasing in Australia, if not the world. So what, how do we quantify how bad these are? Because we constantly get these messages in the news and quite often we just go, it's not me, it's not gonna happen to me. Um, furthermore, as part of this report, 63% of Australians are overweight or obese. Overweight meaning your body mass index is 25 or over. Um, have a look at me. What do you think I am? Overweight? My body mass index is 24.1. I'm borderline overweight. Although I probably don't look like it, do I? Um, I, I think so myself, but that's something that's not recognised often enough that um, to be overweight doesn't necessarily mean to be obese and the population, large population of Australians are actually overweight. 60% of Australians do not exercise enough. Um, the guys just mentioned before, uh, Fitbit and Jawbone and, and the steps and the purpose of that hasn't been made really clear. The World Health Organization recommends taking 10,000 steps of activity during the day. Walking, running, jogging, walking to a meeting, walking to lunch, having a walking meeting, taking the stairs instead of the lifts. There's all sorts of things that you can do to get 10,000 steps and that's all it takes, walking the dog or, or walking instead of taking the bus. Um, that's all part of cardiovascular health. 92% of Australians don't eat enough vegetables. So um, that's incredible, 92%. So there's an element of nutrition here, which is, which is really at play causing this chronic disease element. So if you consider these three components, smoking and alcohol are probably easier to control for most people, but daily inactivity is a, is a massive issue and most people think it's not that important. So that sort of like gives you a broad context of the problems on a, on a national level, if not global level. Um, the how is how do you use technology, wearables or internet of things to actually address or solve for some of these problems? So this is an assumption that I've put together around the how. Um, technology can be used to collect data to better understand our health behavior or symptoms, such as a step tracker or a pedometer, um, with the intent to use that data to modify behavior. I don't take enough steps, I'm notified of it, therefore I need to change behavior. That behavior change is extremely hard. Um, I conducted an experiment at Medibank, um, 60, participants, jawbones, Fitbits, from the executives down over the course of three months to under, understand whether or not they're actually um, beneficial to the wearer. The guys that were uber fit, remained uber fit, the rest were educated as to how unfit they were, but it didn't necessarily change their behavior. Now the watch. I've got 10 examples here from around Asia Pacific. Uh, most people are aware of what's coming out of America in terms of Fitbit, Jawbone, um, Apple Watch, um, 
emotive, which is actually that those guys are out of Brisbane. Um, but I've got some really interesting things here that are quite different that I thought I'd share with you. Before I get into that, there's probably four categories that I've, di that I've divided them into, and the first one being um, prevention. So this basically outlines everyone's healthcare journey or most people's healthcare journey. Everyone starts at a point of being fit, where you spend your time getting fitter, sports, playing, um, or you do things to prevent an illness. Um, something goes wrong and you're in a stage of diagnosis. What's gone wrong? I've got a headache, I've got a blood nose. Um, that could be something that's solved by going to a doctor or it could actually take a long time to learn what's wrong with you. There's an element of treatment beyond that. I know what's wrong with me, I need to take this pill, I need to take this behavior change, I need to um, eat better. Uh, once again, that could be prolonged or it could be very quick. And then finally, you've got an element of condition management. Unfortunately, I've been diagnosed with something, it's not gonna go away, I have to live with this. Um, so there's an element there of how do I ensure I've got quality of life um, in managing my condition. Hopefully it gets cured and you, you go back to prevention, but I've divided these wearables and technologies into these four areas. First one here is, uh, I started with the toilet one first, okay? So there's an app which is connected to this toilet coming out of a company in Japan. The interesting thing about this is not that it's on an app that can actually open up the, uh, the lid or allow you to flush remotely, it's not interesting because it's also easy to hack, but it's interesting because of that second diagram around the calendar function. Um, what's interesting about calendar function with the toilet is understanding and quantifying your daily movements, which can be very important if you have a bowel condition or simply if it's a matter of um, understanding your regularity. Um, most people understand and are quite aware, aware if it's in one direction or the other, but this is a great way for a doctor to be able to look at your um, historical information and be able to diagnose you. Another one from Japan, this is Omron. Omron is not a startup, they're a manufacturer of medical devices. This is a basal thermal, uh, basal thermometer, digital thermometer that's wireless. Um, it allows women to track temperature and it ties it together with an app based over cloud. Um, this is really interesting because it's a cloud-based service, costs $3 a month. So you buy the device, you connect, you pay $3 a month subscription. On top of that, if the data reveals some anomaly, you take action on that anomaly and go and see a doctor, um, Omron and Docomo will actually pay you for that. They'll rebate your medical expenses. So uh, I mentioned Docomo. Docomo, uh, NTT Docomo is Japan's largest telco, like our Telstra they've created a health division, which is interesting because here in Australia, we've got Telstra with Telstra Health. So you can sort of understand the direction that these telecommunication players are moving in when it comes to um, the role of IT and communication of healthcare information. <coughs> Omron, once again, wellness link. So this is a pedometer, electronic pedometer, like you'd have a Fitbit or a jawbone. The difference being is that this is interesting from the point of targeting businessmen um, with a gamification component to it. So once again, you can see a common theme here, device to track information, track data, visualize the data, recommend changes. It's that three-step loop, which you'll see common to all of these. 
an example from China. So this company, Peacock, they actually, they seem to rip off a lot of wearables from other parts of the world. This one's quite unique in that it's a digital um, measuring tape. So measures your vital statistics, stores it online in the cloud and gives you recommendations about um, things to change, behavior to change. Another one from Japan. I think there's one more from Japan. Then all, not all from Japan. I've got one Aussie in there. Um, diagnosis. So this device you, you place on your back, lower back, and it diagnoses your posture, how you walk. And on the basis of that, it gives you recommendations about specific exercises to improve and rinse and repeat. So you continue to wear it. Have I improved my posture? And it continues to help you with that diagnosis component. It's important to consider that this is an internet of things on its own, but you need to think about on a broad scale of what if you brought this into a hospital or aged care facility? What if you have a multitude of them out there? What's the value and potential inside of that, uh, that cluster of data um, as opposed to a one-to-one -one component? Um, I've got one from the States, which is this one, Luna. You'll find it on Indiegogo. Uh, the founder has restless leg syndrome. So here's a real challenge when it comes to sleeping at night. He developed this um, mattress cover. It fits over queen size, king size. You can buy it. I think it's, it's quite reasonable, 150 or 200, if you call that reasonable. Um, it has dual heating components as well as sleep tracking functions with a view to help improve your quality of sleep. Once again, consider the value of that in a hospital ward or wards and um, nurses being able to track and understand and derive insights from the information. So the data component is a key element to all of these type of um, functions. This is very similar. So a small device probably costs $40 from Japan. Um, this one, you just lay it on your bed. And once again, it follows that same loop of data collection based on your movements throughout the night. Um, and then offering you suggestions on what to improve. This one's quite impressive. I only discovered it last night. I don't know if anyone's seen it before, but um, already in the past couple of hours, we've seen a lot of interesting headbands. This one from a South Korean company called Y-Brain is an Alzheimer's treatment band. Um, currently going through clinical trials, they raised 4.2 million over a number of different rounds. Um, it, it basically uh, uses um, the electronics to stimulate the front of the brain. You wear it 30 minutes a day for five days. Um, they've made a claim that it, it's 20 to 30% more effective than oral medication. Um, this is a really interesting to see because this, this is what you'd call a, um, a management type of service. So condition management. Melbourne-based guys, Kuro. So from a remote monitoring perspective, and this is the, probably the only example I've got which is true Internet of Things, they've got a number of different sensors you place in, for example, a room within an aged care facility. And based on the movement, such as turning on the kettle, turning the microwave on or off, um, entering or exiting the room, uh, all of this data is collected and not live streamed, but basically alerts you as a family member to better understand, um, you know, is my granddad okay? Has he done his daily activities, etc.? 
This is the last one. This is from Singapore Healint. Um, they've got an interesting focus on artificial intelligence as well as machine learning. Uh, I guess their view is that the mobile phone is something that people already carry, so why give them a wearable? Uh, giving someone something extra changes their behavior and also introduces gaps of data collection. If people already carry their mobile phone and use it, then let's leverage that. Um, so they've got a focus in, they've got about three different apps. This one is focused on migraine management um, and you have a proactive as well as a passive data collection component which a doctor can remotely view and help with the diagnosis and symptom checking. Now, this whole area is a subset of health tech, health technology, which is itself a subset of healthcare. So you've heard of pharma tech, you've heard of gene tech, you've heard of biotech, you've heard of med tech. Med tech is actually the, the, the devices for injections, etc. Um, health tech is a small slither itself which contains a software or a digital experience. There's a real challenge in getting this to market. Um, a number of the challenges include that it's difficult to MVP it. It's difficult to prototype. You kind of need to do it, the whole thing, and prove it in market um, before you actually get any commercial traction. You need to be able to prove it does what it says it does because, of course, we've already heard there's a lot of legal implications. Um, it's a highly regulated industry, both here and internationally. Um, the FDA has a lot of control, and it was only two years ago FDA introduced regulations around um, health-related mobile apps as well. And uh, they introduced a very interesting regulation around um, if you have a, a company offering a mobile app in that healthcare space, you need to have a chief medical officer. You need to have someone on board which is, who has clinical experience. So I guess to, to wrap things up, a uh, nice little quote here from my buddy, Dr. Ian Boyd from Medibank. Although we live longer these days, one of the disadvantages is that people may be living longer with incurable and often debilitating diseases. Something for all of us to remember is that um, uh, medical technology has advanced and our ability to keep you technically alive longer doesn't mean you'll be happier. It doesn't mean you'll have quality of life. It doesn't mean you're able to look after yourself. So that's a challenge at the moment in the medical space of how do you balance out um, the ability to keep people repaired from a medical perspective versus quality of life and personal happiness. So with that, um, I'll leave you, uh, here's my details. Uh, if anyone has any questions, happy to help you out. Um, I think keep this in mind, consider the opportunities. You don't have to come from a health background I don't, but it's really about how can you solve some of these bigger problems that we touched upon earlier. Remember, 90% Australians died thanks to uh, chronic diseases, so how can we help manage and improve quality of life for all of them? Thanks. Ooh, well done, Alex. Thank you. Now, with you and I both struggling with our BMI, I'm thinking we might just stand up. What do you reckon? Come over here. <laughs> sure. Let's, let's burn some calories while we uh, interact with the audience. Thank you for that. Okay. Uh, firstly, I want your opinion on uh, the concept. We've spoken about Internet of Things today. I'll bring it back yeah. to health. Yeah. But I've heard the phrase Internet of Everything. And I just want to gauge your reaction. What, what do you think about Internet of Everything? Because I, I love your balanced view of things and you've given us 
a very keep it real sort of presentation here. So oh, sure. okay. when someone comes up with that big picture, maybe you could comment on that for us as well. Um, I think one of the, like my perspective on Internet of Things or Internet of every, Everything is not necessarily the, the connecti connectiveness of sensors and data collection capabilities. The challenge is not so much um, collecting the information, but what you do with it which starts leading towards big data and it's great. I know, I know my steps, I know what I do, what I don't do, how much I drink, how much nutrition I, I get in, but so what? That's, that's the big challenge at the moment. Um, how do you derive insights from data? Um, it's not even big data, it's just, it's very well structured data, but there are probably not enough data scientists in the health field to better understand how do I change behavior and then how do you force people to change their own behaviours. You, you can do all sorts of things that will cause your own death, um, but that element is really out of the hands of healthcare professionals because it's up to the individual to actually take action on um, insights based on data collected. Excellent. Now you're focused uh, in your day-to-day -day business now, uh, post-Medibank as um, Asia Health Startups, is yep. that correct? Can you give us an idea of just, you've shown us some great examples out of, uh, out of uh, Japan and then locally. Yeah. Where do you think some of the biggest breakthroughs are going to come in, in the health space despite some of the legal privacy sure. challenges that are out there? Sure. Um, I'll start off with stating that, that Internet of Things and wearables are a small component of health tech. So what I've been looking at in my site, basically health uh, health Startups Asia is a directory listing of as many emerging health tech companies around Asia Pacific as we can find. Um, what we've discovered is that there's everything from patient management, oh, sorry, patient engagement to practice management to um, genetics and personalized medicine. Uh, for those that haven't heard of it, personalized medicine is a bit of a um, pet passion for me. It's really about uh, using your DNA, your, your genetic information, understanding your disease propensity and formulating medication, pharmaceuticals that are specific to your DNA, which is incredible because then all of a sudden, right now you go, you get an over-the-counter medicine which has been market tested, it's been trial, clinically trialled, but everyone is different and it will work with some people and not, not others, which is why for me as a hay fever sufferer, I'll run from Zyrtec to Teldine to um, Claritine to, to whatever else is out there and I'll just go round and round circles and it, and it may or may not work and I may feel like it works or it may not work, I'll use everything out there but effectively I don't know and, and they don't know either because I've got a, a particular type of DNA with particular propensities and all of us do but that's, that's the future when it comes to, to the genetic side but in terms of the the learnings that we've had from health tech startups, sorry, not health tech startups, they're a great bunch if, if you guys haven't met them, um, from Health Startups Asia is that India, India are really interesting to watch. So we've got about 140 to 150 startups listed. Um, about 30 of them are out of Australia, uh, probably a large number out of India. India is really, really interesting to watch because they can't, they actually have a very good medical system from a, a surgery perspective, but from a general informational perspective, it's really lacking. So we see a lot coming out of there. 
the challenge right now across the board is, are they viable? And that's the real question because you can look at America and you see companies with $100 million investments, but the medical fraternity is, is very strong. Um, here in Australia, we've got the AMA, the ADA, they've got a particular st strong position when it comes to introduction of new technologies that claim to, cl uh, to improve things. Excellent. Just a matter of interest, I want to do a quiz before we get to one, another question. How many here have actually measured their activity slash heart rate slash uh, any aspect of their, their body health? Wow. Okay. That's great. So given IoT was the general topic, but we've now this with Alex and the next and final speaker for the afternoon that is specifically about health. So it's good to know that, that mm. people uh, are experimenting, connecting, and, and of course that's going to grow as well. So there was a question. Yeah, to, to, yeah please speak up. Um, absolutely. So funny that you mentioned this. Uh, I just sent off a, a little LinkedIn post. Uh, there's a, a Melbourne-based company called ClinicCloud, previously known as StethoCloud. Um, Hon is the, the founder of it, um, came out of Melbourne Uni. Um, basically, they've got two devices um, which are cloud-connected, which basically help you from a at-home perspective better manage your, uh, your health measurements. Um, so there, from an Australian perspective, not so many, but all you need to do is go onto um, Indiegogo, go onto Kickstarter. There's no shortage of devices trying to simplify this process, no shortage of digital thermometers. Um, as I said, it doesn't seem to be a problem collecting the information. It's really about accuracy and, and how is it represented. And do you end up providing a bit of advice to these startups? Are you involved in that side of it as well? Uh, yes, so I do some startup advisory work, um, uh, not helping these guys in particular, but helping some guys over in Perth called Boundless, B-O-U-N-D-L-S-S. Um, these guys don't do anything on the device side. They aggregate the data and use machine learning to identify trends in the data that's collected and based on that offer the recommendations. So there's probably about three or four companies um, around the world that are focused on the area of, okay, so what, you've collected this data, but what does it mean? So it's that tricky machine learning end of um, recommendations based on your behavior. Uh, maybe time for one last question. Yeah, please. Let's repeat the question. Um, Athena just asked, do you think that we'll see GPs actually recommending, suggesting wearables as much, or at least maybe towards uh, the, the sort of frequency that they actually prescribe medicines? So. It's a great question. Um, uh, I'd say no in the short term. Think of how challenging it is for pharmaceutical, uh, pharmaceutical companies to encourage GPs to actually um, push a certain type of medication. There's a lot of regulation in, in that space and, and unlike in America, you can't advertise on TV particular uh, prescription uh, medication. So part of the challenge is, first of all, how do you get to the GPs? And secondly, 
the GPs need to have the, um, the support or the direction from their body. So um, Australian Medical Association has a, a strong voice in that. There are many other associations. And if the associations say, no, that's rubbish, um, that's sort of, that, they hold a lot of power within that regard. So part of it is, is it a generational thing that younger doctors will actually say, I believe that this is the right thing to do? Or is it a sea change in attitude in the country? So you can see where it's challenging. We're a touch ahead on time, so we've made it up and, and making sure we're staying on time here. So we've got time for maybe one last question out there. Yes, please. Uh, the question is, how far away are we from carrying our own personal health chip, whether it's carrying it or embedded within us, I think, if, if I can extend and paraphrase. Um, good question. Interesting. Uh, very far away, I'd say. Uh, I'd say that health insurers aren't even looking in, in that particular direction at the moment. Um, I think globally, health well, country by country, there's different regulations. So things they can do in America, they can't do here and vice versa. So there's something, for example, there's something here called community rating, which basically applies a non-discrimination um, model across insurance, health insurance in particular. So if you go to the gym every day and I don't, it doesn't mean that they can charge me more than you. Um, by the same token, if you smoke every day and I don't, I don't get a discount either. So it's opposed to even the playing field, but in terms of um, research into that side, I don't know where anywhere in the world at the moment where, where that's being investigated. All right, well, thank you again, Alex, and uh, very informative presentation and excellent, great questions as well. So Thanks. please give Alex a big hand, thank you. Thanks. Now we've got the last and final presentation and before we get on to him, I want you to all stand up. The reason is uh, Alex has sort of raised the point here, you know, we're, at a 25 BMI that I'm probably pretty close to too, I think we need to stretch, stand and get some oxygen. But even more so, because the last presentation is all about health, well-being in a very practical way. And I think it's probably good for us to welcome in on stage while we're standing, stretching our arms, maybe uh, just moving body around. Please welcome Mike Halligan, the founder and CEO of BodyWise. And he's going to provide us some insights on the app, the technology, the internet of things and how that's all coming together to help us be more healthy, and uh, hopefully leading to all those other benefits in life. So please welcome Mike Halligan. Thank you, thank you. Um, I make an app called BodyWise. Um, just in short, it's a health and fitness tracker and it's trying to solve the problem that I thought Alex might have actually um, covered before, which is uh, what, what do we do with this data? How do we make it useful? How do we turn it into something that's actually changing lives, that's helping people lose weight, be happier, or um, more energetic in the morning, and all these different things? Um, I'm going to start. Everyone think of a personal trainer that they know. And it, it, pretty much every second person these days is a personal trainer, so we should all be able to have someone in mind as a personal trainer. And then you think about the, the data set that you're producing on a you know, a daily basis and all the hands went up before so I know everyone's tracking their fitness so we should, um, every day we, we've kind of got this, um, this footprint being left behind about our steps, where we were, I could, you know, tell you exactly how many steps you took in any given minute yesterday if you gave me your phone. Um, so we've got this massive, 
set of data that if you were to give to that personal trainer that you know, they'd be able to teach you things. They'd be able to point out things that you probably didn't know about what you were doing that might have inhibited your goal. And technology is not anywhere near a point where that's actually occurring yet. Like we're giving all this data to, um, to your phone, to an app, to the Fitbit servers on a daily basis, but we're not getting anything back that's anywhere remotely like the value you would get from giving that exact same set of data to a person with um, the appropriate skill. So wearables don't work. On one end, we've got health and fitness apps like, um, like MyFitnessPal, your weight loss apps, and they work really well. You might have to be super motivated, but people lose 15 kilos from them. People have this, um, these moments where they attribute this great success they've had in achieving a goal that was previously hard. They thank the app for doing that. It enables all these new things that were previously really hard. On the other end, you've got your RunKeeper or your specialist workout apps, and they work as well. You've got people that go from running 5Ks to doing half marathons or full marathons, so they work as well. And then in the middle, you've got your Fitbits and your Jawbones and your wearables. But no one's sort of jumping up and down saying, um, I lost 15 kilos, I lost 5 kilos, I you know, feel amazing when I wake up in the morning now, and it's because of the Fitbit, it's because of this thing in my wrist. No one's doing that yet. So we're buying these things, they've got this, you know, they've got this cool factor, um, they sell really well, but they don't actually work, and you know, inevitably they end up just in the, you know, in the cupboard, not actually doing anything. And it... It is a serious thing because with health and fitness, it's not like you know, you're downloading an, an app and you know, the app or a game and you might like it, you might not. Um, the worst case scenario is you just delete it and you never open it again. But with health and fitness, you're a lot more emotionally invested. Like this stuff actually matters to you. you know, people have serious mental hang-ups about, uh, about how they're performing, about whether these things actually work. Like downloading a health and fitness app, there's more emotional energy goes into that decision to try that app and to use that to, to, I guess, trust with this goal you're trying to accomplish than any other sort of mobile or mobile product out there at all. So it is a kind of a serious thing, like people will actually care. So it's led us to create BodyWise, which um, manages more about your health than, say, a Fitbit. You, you can track more practical things like uh, water intake, caffeine, um, smoking, alcohol, um, things like sit-ups and whatnot. And we did so because, um, it, you know, these things don't work. And while, while these devices are being sold, so while, a Fit, while Fitbit are making, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars over the Christmas period, they're not that incentivized to actually make the app that works because it's, these things are still running, um, you know, off the shelves. And they can, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly get better. But um, when you've got a pure software app that uh, the incentive, you're only, you're only making money, you're only producing... Um, you know, you're only succeeding if you're producing value for someone in the form of actually achieving your goal. Your incentive aligned with the thing actually working properly and achieving, you know, that health and fitness goal that the user signed up for rather than a Fitbit, you, you know, you buy it and um, it's cool for a week and then you get bored of it. I found this one when I was doing a bit of research before and it, it kind of it sums up the wristbands themselves and they really haven't come too far because, you, you know, back in 2004, McDonald's ran this promo. So you'd take little Johnny to McDonald's, he'd get his, um, his meal of carbs with a Happy Meal and then McDonald's would give you this little pedometer, just really, really basic technology and it's funny, if you can comp compare that in the, you know, the um, nine-odd years since, or the 11 years since that actually, that promotion came out and all these pedometers were on everyone's belts, um, it's on your wrist now, 
it tracks a few more things and increasingly tracking more and more things. But the actual, you know, the pedometer, the device, the wearable itself is not actually that much different. But it, it doesn't need to be. The wearables are doing a good enough job as it is. Um, they're making it easy to actually log things that you otherwise wouldn't have logged because no one's actually sitting there writing in a journal um, how many steps they took on any given day. Um, and people are more and more conscious of their health. So the wearable, the device itself's doing a good job. And it's the app that matter. If you take away the app, these things are absolutely useless, especially the jawbone because the thing doesn't even have a screen. So it's all about the apps. And so if the app sucks, the product fails. I don't lose my... I don't lose the weight that I'm trying to lose because the app sucks. If the app sucks, I uh, I take the thing I take the Fitbit back straight away if the you know the app doesn't work or if it's got a terrible user interface if I can't actually get my stuff into it. Um, it's all about the app. So devices gather the data, but the apps make it useful. And I guess that comes back to the the problem that Alex touched on that nothing's really making it useful yet. Nothing's actually taking all that data and saying, all right, this this means this this means that you should be doing that. Your goal is this, I've crunched this data and I've worked out that you should be doing this to you know, achieve that goal. So we look at the, the two main apps here. On, on the left we've got Jawbone, on the right we've got Fitbit and you see two completely different approaches. And with every wearable, I mean, they're producing the same data essentially. So these guys have exactly the same thing to work with and they've imagined two different experiences of how you use that data. And these apps are so different that the user outcomes, you know, how uh, the fitness goals that are achieved by a Fitbit user is completely different than what's achieved by a Jawbone Up user, even though all the data is exactly the same. It's purely the software that's determining how much they're actually getting out of these things that they're paying $100, $150 for. So if we look at the Jawbone, we see they've maybe admirably tried to um, simplify it down a fair bit. So two, two key things, sleep and steps, movement. So they've tried to simplify that down into two percentage-based numbers. Really super easy to understand. And they've even, with the, the loving yawn there, they've tried to actually like, use a bit of data insight, tell you something, and they use that space to educate you. On the other hand, we've got Fitbit, and they kind of list everything um, down. They've got more of a focus on calories. And you see that your, f your health and fitness is a lot more complicated than just, did I sleep and did I move? So it has you thinking about all the little choices that you make. And that's just purely a software decision. That makes you that much more conscious of all these other things in your health and fitness purely because of what that app actually shows you the first time you open it. And so with a Fitbit app, you dive more into the calories. You dive more into um, whether you're drinking enough water every day or that, you know, the 24-minute run there. You dive more into that than you would if you're a drawbone up user. So a Fitbit user, I would argue, is more likely to get fit than a Jawbone Up user, even though they've got exactly the same set of information being provided to software. And then you've got diet tracking, which is a whole different thing. Uh, if you see in the right there, I've searched chicken, uh, chicken parma, and I've got, about, <laughs> I've got about 20 different responses that came up, all of varying different values, and I've got absolutely no idea, even though I'm you know, in this industry making these kind of things myself, I've got absolutely no idea which one to go for. So the whole, I guess, diet logging side of things is completely stuff up on these. And so after a while, you stop using them. And everyone's heard that, you know, I think it's about 60% of wearables aren't used after six months. And they're not used because, number one, you get bored of seeing the same data. But number two, you, I mean, you, get, you lose your motivation because 
if you think back to that personal training, you know, if you were to you know, use that personal trainer for six months, they'd be mixing things up all the time. They'd be refreshing um, the way that they train you. They'd be using a different tone of voice. Some days they'd scream at you. Some days they'd back off a little bit. They'd try to train you in different ways. Um, they'd have this variety that just sort of adapts to the habit. It adapts to where you are as a, as a human. And these Fitbit and Jawbone apps, and you know, I guess the, the general wearable apps, there's a sort of one-size-fits-all solution. And as humans, you know, health and fitness, it's tough. Everyone's different, and the way that you think about health and fitness is completely different than the way I do. And I might be motivated by one thing, or I might be motivated by all my numbers. Other people might be motivated by a photo or an image that they want to get to. Other people might be motivated by a particular life moment they've got coming up. And so there is one-size-fits-all solutions don't work in health and fitness. You ask that personal trainer, how would they actually coach you? And you, think, you start to think that software can do better. These, these things that we're using with the devices on our wrist or maybe even just the step tracking and the things that our, phone is, our phones are actually tracking these days, they can do better. They can do a hell of a job. And I, I'd actually argue that these things are going to be able to do a better job training the general population, educating them about the decisions they make and guiding them through. I think they'll do a better job than personal trainers ever could. They'll be able to reach out to so many more people. And if we actually get you know, sufficiently good at it, these things have the potential to make a massive change to, I guess, our culture and um, our general knowledge, especially in you know, parts of America where the knowledge around uh, food and diet and exercise choices is terrible. Like Kellogg's is a healthy breakfast, according to most people, all these you know, sugar-based sugar, um, cereals. They think that they're healthy. And there's nothing out there that's telling them, no, that's a bad decision. So even if you're, even right now, if I was to eat, you know, three bowls of cereal in the morning, the average American for particular parts of America might think that's a really healthy breakfast. If I put that in my Fitbit, it's not telling me that that's not a healthy breakfast. If I tell a nutritionist, if I tell a personal trainer, they would be screaming at me saying that is the worst breakfast you can have. You know how much sugar you've got in your system, so much refined sugar. But I tell the software at the moment, the software is not telling me that. And that's to the point the software needs to get to. But month by month, we're getting more uh, data to work with. We're getting more bits of the puzzle being told to technology so they can you know, have a more complete picture of where things are at. I'm going to look at a few examples here of what data could do. And this is just with a basic set of data like what a Fitbit or a Jawbone does, which is you know, six or seven different things. Data could partner you with a stranger with similar data. So someone on the other side of the world Meet Sonia, she's 26, she's from London, she had a similar point in her life, similar goals from you, she's actually got pretty similar data from you. You guys can you know, spur each other on, Might, maybe you'll make a friend, but um, you'll be accountable to that person, that stranger over the other side of the world. Or the same set of data could pit cities or countries or groups of people uh, against each other in the form of competition, motivate you to beat someone, um, some random person or some random group of people. And, and this isn't, you know, this is not a single app. This could be every few, few weeks, we want to mo motivate you in a different form. We're going to try this. I, um, my co-founder, Dave, is a personal trainer. He, every few weeks, every few months, he'll set a new challenge. And sometimes it is um, just drink a certain amount of water every day for a week. Sometimes it's splitting the groups into halves and having one half try to beat the other half in something. So every few weeks, he'll just introduce new challenges. So each of these challenges could be something that Fitbit is doing.
it could be something that Jawbone's doing, just to mix things up, to keep people engaged. So it's not just that dashboard that you saw with the numbers running down in the list. Data could motivate you when you're about to quit, which we all sort of get to at some point. Um, the app might realise you haven't logged, you haven't opened the app, or you're opening it less frequently. And it might see that the steps that are automatically logging have gone down in the last few days. So you're in, you know, exhibiting all the signs that you might, might be about to quit on your health and fitness goal. You're about to give up, you're about to, um, I guess, fail. Let's motivate you not to fail. Let's use that friend of yours that also quit as the motivation. Be better than them. Or data could pat you in the back because you know, maybe you've done really well. Maybe you've achieved a lot. You're healthy. You've lost X amount of weight. Um, your body age has you know, been reduced by five years. That's incredible. Well done. Keep going. And there's not enough of that in all these products. But over time, and it's sort of happened over the last six months, these things are evolving more and more. The software is getting a little bit better. We're still going really, really slowly, but it's getting better. And we get, it's getting better because we've got more data to work with. So increasingly, we're getting a picture of your heart rate. So the new Fitbits, the Apple um, Watch when it comes out, it will have your heart rate monitored. So we know what training zone you're in when you work out. Is that in line with your goal? Are you working out too hard? Are you not working out frequently enough? You know, how, is the duration of your exercise correct? All these questions can be answered by this simple set of data that these devices are now providing. Perspiration and hydration. Am I adequately hydrated for the exercise I was doing? Is that why I sucked this week compared to how I went last week? If, I, if the app knew, say, other things like um, what my smoking was like or if I'd had a few drinks a few of those nights that week, they'd be able to say, all right, this is influencing the way you've gone this week. So you did bad and you're ordinarily going to feel bad about that. But we can say, this is why, this is why that occurred. Don't do that next week. See how you go. Then next week comes around, you do better, you feel great about yourself and that motivation picks back up where it would have otherwise been let down without a good software experience. With the GPS, it'll know where you've been. So logging, you know, logging going to the gym, logging, um, going for a run, all these things will happen automatically without you even having to press start, press um, 27 minutes, whatever it was you did. You don't have to actually manually log it. Technology is going to automatically log things for you. And then you step in your smart scales. How much do you weigh? What's your body fat percentage? How does that compare to when you started? How does that compare to last month? So it gives a context. Is it actually working? Do you feel happier? If the, you know, the app's asking your mood, compare your mood over the last few weeks to when you started. Compare the mood, your mood in weeks where you eat like crap to when you eat like a saint. So if I, if I have a really good week, eat really well, um, does the app say, hey, you know your mood seems to be about 25% better than when you eat crap, that's going to help me, it's going to go a long way for me making better decisions along the way. But you sort of think, why hasn't this occurred? Fitbit has actually been around since 2007. So it's been around for a very long time and it's had a lot of opportunities to actually get these things happening, but they haven't. And I, I said a little bit about they don't have the, really, the real incentive to actually make a software product like this at the moment because they're still making all their money selling the wristbands. But there's, there's another element to it, which is health tracking is hard. Like getting this large set of data and getting people to supply that and getting them to supply it often so it's accurate, it's relevant, it's all up to date, doing that is hard. If you ask anyone to log just even for a week what they ate, every single meal, just log it down in a, you know, on a piece of paper, I reckon 90% of the people wouldn't complete the week and that's just a week 
it's hard. There's too, there's too many unknowns. There's too many, you know, there's a lack of education around so many things that we don't end up completing just the simple task of logging. So we're all trying to work out how do we make experiences that are engaging in the long term so that instead of having, you know, a week's worth of data to work with while I'm at my most motivated, while I just started, I've got, you know, three months worth of data because the experience was that engaging that I've given you, I've, I've now got all this data in and that I can actually... You know, pick out things that happen over time because you can't get a really accurate picture from three uh, from a week's worth of data. If you make a really great experience, you make it easy to log all these things about yourself, the app in turn has more to give you value back with. So until you, can, until you solve all the user experience problems with logging one's health, logging all the little things that technology can't, and that might be mood, um, mood, smoking, alcohol, all these different things that you know, technology can't control, and even just diet, diet tracking, um, it's really tough for a Fitbit, for a Jawbone, for anyone to you know provide that value. They just don't have the data to work with. And this is something that we've sort of encountered with Bodywise. And on the left is Bodywise version one. There was a simple little thing we built back in the day for a few thousand dollars. And if I wanted to, if I wanted to track those ten things that I've got there on the left. I had to go into every single one, I'd click into caffeine, I'd enter roughly how many grams worth of caffeine I th thought that I'd consume that day, and I'd go back out, and then I'd go into sugar. And the whole process of me doing that might take five minutes. Big pain in the ass, and there were so many unknowns. How many grams of caffeine did I have? How many grams of sugar? It's just you know, too hard for the average person to work out. And then on the right is one of our more recent um, interfaces, which is you enter everything all in one day. And most of that just automatically syncs from your phone, from the Fitbit or the Jawbone and whatnot, and you just fill in the gaps. But we notice whenever we try something, whenever we move around, even just the order of, of these things here. So at the moment, we've got calories burned appearing at the top there. But if we put something like water intake at the top there, you're more, you're, I think the, the test ended up being about 20% more likely to track your water if it was up the top as opposed to if it was down the bottom. So all these little user experience things that you do when you're designing a health app impact how long you stick around. They impact how frequently you check. They impact what you're conscious of. And they ultimately impact how likely you are to actually achieve that health and fitness goal you started with. So a product designer in health has a lot of responsibility in their hands because all the little decisions they make significantly impact you know, whether you're actually going to achieve your goal. So it's led us to a few thoughts on what the killer wearable app looks like. What, what's the ultimate app? If Fitbit were to reimagine their app from the start, if Bodywise ends up being the ultimate wearable app, what will we try to do? What does it actually look like? And number one, it'll be smart, which sort of goes without saying, but it'll be analytical also. Um, and it'll be analytical in the way that it'll look at all that set of data that's coming in and it'll recognise patterns and it'll recognise, all right, when this happens, then this happens also. And it'll use that analysis and it'll try to be predictive. So, for example, um, it might analyse you know, days you know, that I'm at the office for you know, 10 plus hours, days where I have really a really long day at the office, so let's say 12 hours. Then it'll compare that data set with something else. And this might all happen in the background. So it might compare that data set with what's my diet like on days where I have a long day at the office. Am I 82% you know, more likely to eat like shit that night because I'm stressed, I don't feel like I've got the time? And so the app turns out into experience where it gives you a healthy meal option when you leave the, leave the office. 
So it would be predictive. We'll use that analysis to work out when you're likely to do something that's bad or when you're likely to do something that's going to inhibit your goal. And it will give you an easy option or just a, you know, a little, little nudge say, hey, we're going to make it easier for you to actually stay on track. And it'll be flexible because we're all completely different in the way that we interact with our health. We're all completely different in the things that we respond to. If my personal trainer speak, you know, shouts at me, I'll react completely differently than if they shout at my, you know, shout at my friend. That person is a completely different person. They react in different ways. They've got different pain points. Things motivate them differently. So an app needs to be able to recognise your personality type, where you are in the form of habit, and then what motivates you. It needs to be able to adapt to that over time because this one-size-fits-all solution doesn't actually produce something that the general population are all going to find useful and ultimately uh, successful. It'll be empathetic as well because you know, good trainers, good coaches, they have an element of empathy to them. They realise that some days it's just tough. Like It's tough to work out some days. Some days you don't feel like it. Things pop up. Um, the apps need to be able to you know, let you off the hook just every once in a while and then use that at the same time to motivate you next time it comes around to do better. It's like if you're you know, with a good trainer and you take the week off and you come back the next week, with a good trainer, you're probably going to have the best session you've had for months and you'll, you'll walk out of there and you'll feel a million bucks and you'll be really, really pumped for the next session. But that's purely because of the way that they've coached you. And so with an empathetic app um, and one that is flexible, they'll be able to put those same training and experiences on you as well. And finally, it wraps that up into a package that is motivating. Whenever it, all these different things, it doesn't matter if it's not motivating. So it all has to come back to something that spots you, works out where you're at, works out um, what your goals are, and then motivates you along the way. And it doesn't just do it for the first week. It doesn't just introduce a cool new feature here and then. It manages you over months and months and months. And until you get to that point, I don't think wearables are going to work. And certainly not in the form that a Fitbit and a Jawbone are doing that. So that's what we're working on with BodyWise at the moment. We're trying to make a killer wearable app. We're trying to take all this data. We're trying to pull in data that other apps aren't asking, trying to make sense of it and turn that into actionable advice. And I think whether it's us, whether it's someone else out there in the world, when, whoever does it, it's going to have a massive impact on the general population because, as you, as you can see out there, everyone loves health and fitness. Everyone wants to be health, healthy and fit. People are turning into apps. Um, they're just not working. So the, the challenge is out there. Make them work. Nice. Fantastic. Thank you, Mike. Please put your hands together. Wow, so many things keep popping to my head through that. Firstly, um, when we spoke earlier, you said you'd, you'd studied uh, entrepreneurship at RMIT. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Okay, it definitely shows you've got a, a really good grasp of the challenges in your space, but also a, a fantastic sensibility. Uh, what, what were some of those bigger challenges you had from the early stages in that first app to the latter? I just want to delve into that perhaps with, with your entrepreneurship hat on. Did you... Did you model it out with a, as Alex had MVP, like a minimum viable product type process and then test it out in iterations in the agile method of uh, <laughs> lean startups? Uh, yes and no, I did a lot right. We did a lot right and a lot wrong. Even, you know, even the best um, unicorns in the world sometimes can't prepare to make every decision perfectly because you get so excited on what you're building and what it could be that you kind of stuff up on things along the way. So we definitely, that, that example on the left where I had the list of the you know, 10 odd different things that I was tracking, that was our MVP. So we just said, what are the things that anyone might want to track about themselves that other apps aren't letting them track? Whether it be 
know, waste dimensions or um, sugar or, or whatnot. Uh, and we'll just make an interface that lets people enter them. So it was really simple. And then from that, it was kind of like, all right, the data showing us that people aren't, uh, and you know, they want to enter this stuff, but they're not doing it after a week. Why is that? Was that the case? And then so we released sort of a, a second MVP, which made it a hell of a lot easier and synced with more stuff. And then you speak to users, then you realize, okay, so they're still not entering some things and it feels like a chore to them because you know we're encouraging you to enter more about yourself, which can ultimately lead you to feel quite exhausted with the whole process. So um, we, I guess we then iterated and we removed some stuff out. So the things that you wouldn't track on a daily basis got put to a different part of the app than things that you can influence on a daily basis. Mm. Um, and it was just you know, this whole process. And that, you know, that view on the right, I mean, that's probably a little bit outdated now, but that's still probably 15 different iterations right there. Yeah, interesting. Um, I'm just thinking about my weakness in the last week and it was uh, introduced by someone close to me in the form of a mint chocolate slice. And there's something about when it's open, it's so much easier to say <laughs> yes, just like listing those things at the top yep. of the app. So uh, just thinking about that too, um, I love the fact that you also covered the, the personalization aspect of it. When an app or a device combined with an app tries to predict too much without letting the individual choose and highlight their personalized aspects of what's important to them getting back to the yeah, uh, sure. meaningful part i think that's extremely insightful because i see a lot of apps and i don't necessarily see that thinking in the in the process how important uh, do you think it is to whether it's to map and uh, be that ultimate um, health app which body wise with this sort of intelligent thinking that i see i think is well Thank on you. the path um, <laughs> How how well how hard is it, or how easy is it on that scale? If you can give us a relative picture to get all of those things right, and do you think we'll see that in the next few years? I think we'll definitely see it in the next few years, and I think there's a lot of smart minds out there that, because they've because they've ultimately tried a Fitbit and just failed, any anyone in the entrepreneurial space has probably had a thought, I can do this better. So I think you're going to have a lot of minds sort of attacking this problem. Uh, it is really hard to combine that all into to one app though and I think look, my, my personal view is that there's too many engineers in these companies at the moment so you've got, you've got this engineering led approach to product design and not um, and not something that comes from the people that actually know how to work with humans and have them achieve goals so if you have coaches as sort of a the core part of a team I think you end up with a completely different product I think that the the product that ends up getting there or the products that end up getting there and wrapping this all up in a package that really works for people and help them achieve these goals, I think they're going to have a much larger um, sort of percentage of people that really understand the human psyche than just engineers who are awesome at writing code and releasing new features. That was actually the thought that I had in my head just as I was about to get up here. I was thinking once you and, and uh, BodyWise nail all of that, you, you can then go after uh, probably Tinder's market as well because <laughs> you could probably introduce the electronic, the, girl, electronic partner to be the motivation, the support and the empathy all in one. Yep, so I'm thinking <laughs> you've got a couple of segments covered here with uh, that type of thinking. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.